Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we're the Minimalists. We're here with Malabama. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman is here. What it is. We've got the rest of our team in the studio as well, plus a very special guest, Dr. Paul Saladino, our returning champion. (laughs) Great to have you, man. It's so good to be here. I've never gotten a... Uh, an applause. <laughs> I applaud when they all come in. Like Danny walked in this morning, and I'm clapping. I try to feel about that. Yeah, I just feel feel great about about you know giving everyone the sort of proverbial pat on the back. Paul, this is your I think third or fourth time on the podcast. The first time that we had you here, it was a debate non debate with uh, Rich Roll. First time that I've ever seen a carnivore and a vegan on a podcast together and really, and maybe there's been plenty since then, but at the time, and what was so fascinating to me about that conversation is you would think the Venn diagram between someone like our good friend, Rich Roll, who's supremely healthy and, and, and eats nothing but plants and Paul Saladino, who at the time ate nothing but animal products, and mm. we're going to talk about how that has changed significantly. He's basically a fruitarian now. <laughs> so say some. A, a breatharian. Uh, uh, he does breathe every day. <laughs> um, so what, what I noticed is there was still a ton of overlap in your philosophies. And a lot of it had to do with what to avoid. Mm. And I really want to dive deep into that today. We're talking about food clutter. We got some questions about what foods to avoid for better health and also what foods to add in. We're joined by our folks in the chat as well over on Patreon. So if you want to join us there, uh, just drop your questions and comments in the chat. We're going to get to as many of those as we can. Now, since we're talking about food clutter today, we'll get into the questions here in a moment. Paul, I thought since the last time that you've been on the show, a lot has changed. And uh, some of the questions I think will surround that. And what I want to be clear about today is this is a dogma-free podcast. And that's the reason why I wanted to have you and Rich on, and you've been on other times as well. And we set aside the dogma and we talk about what works well for certain people. And that's what I'm hoping to do today. By the way, thank you to our Patreon subscribers. You keep this podcast and our YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because say it with me, y'all. Advertisements suck. Let's start with some of our questions here. We have a question from Patreon. Sarah's got something for us. What are four foods one could subtract from their diet to live more healthfully? Now, Paul, I selected this question first for you, mainly because, and I even added the word for, because I listened to your podcast episode, which by the way, Paul's podcast is called Fundamental Health. And um, I listened to your podcast episode and I thought it was perfect for the minimalists because we're always thinking about what food should I add? What are the healthy foods I'm supposed to eat? And we'll talk about that here Mm. in a moment. We have another question about that. But really, Health often involves subtraction. We figured it out with material goods. Mm. Ryan and I aren't against all material goods. TK, when he came on board, he's even convinced us that some material goods are really (laughs) beneficial. Before he came on board, we were like, uh, send us an inventory of everything you own, TK. (laughs) (laughs) But Paul, I want to... 
take an inventory of really the things, the main things that you've subtracted from your own diet and you've seen other people that you've worked with subtract from their diet to live more healthfully? Yeah, thanks for this. This is a great question. It's such a minimalist question. When I was thinking about this, it's like, this is perfect for the show. And I just want to state from the outset that I'm, I'm not a fruitarian. So people are just not expecting that to come <laughs> later in the show. <laughs> just prepare you guys. But I, I think that there, there are two ways that I think about how humans can live healthfully and optimally. And they're generally the things that you add to your diet, which we'll talk about the most nutrient rich foods, and then the things that you subtract the most toxic foods. Mm. And I, there, rather than four foods, I would think of four categories of food or four ingredients that end up in our food supply. And if you look at the way our food supply as humans has changed over the last 100 years or so, these ingredients have become ubiquitous, unfortunately. So mm. eliminating from your, from your, them from your diet will be a true exercise in minimalism because I would say for most people, 80% of your pantry will go away and probably 75 to 80% of the grocery store will be things that you do not choose to eat anymore because you've made more intentional choices. So mm. number one is seed oils, corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, soybean, grape seed. These processed, so they're refined, bleached, and deodorized oils from Ooh. the seeds of plants. And if you look at some of my content on social media, I've reposted YouTube videos about how these oils are made. And basically looking at the process of making these oils will help people understand how bad they may be for them intuitively because these oils come from seeds which must be roasted or ground. Then the oil is very fragile because these seeds naturally don't expect to be ground if we're talking about anthropomorphization of seeds and oils in them. And then the oils must be bleached and deodorized and extracted with hexane because of contaminants. And so you're ending up with a very fragile oil that gets basically put through the ringer and abused and, you know, mm. jumped in an alley and completely mugged and ends up yeah. being a not very healthy food for humans. Mm. And then, you know, the, the marketing of these oils is so confused to consumers because the medical community looks at them from a very myopic perspective. And I'll, I don't want to get too technical, but we, I, I'm a physician. And so when we look at oils for humans, basically the only metric that we want to understand is do they raise or lower LDL? And that's probably a separate question maybe for another podcast. These oils may lower LDL, but they also raise other markers of oxidation of LDL, which mm. are probably better predictors of cardio cardiovascular health. But that explains why they've been promoted to us. But getting rid of them will then, I think, improve people's cardiovascular health, the cell membranes, the mitochondria. So seed oils, get rid of them completely. And in favor like in a little preview here, I would, I would actually favor animal fats or fats that are much lower in the polyunsaturated fats, specifically things like linoleic acid. I don't want to get, I'm getting kind of technical, but linoleic acid is in seed oils. So you want to avoid that in high quantities and other oils. Animal fats are actually much better from that perspective. Second thing would be high fructose corn syrup. Mm. Most people can kind of understand this. I think within the zeitgeist, we've been told that sugar is bad for us, but there is some nuance around high fructose corn syrup being different than other types of sugar. And that I think that's maybe something else we could talk about in the podcast. I actually think that honey, especially raw, organic, local honey can be quite healthy for humans. There's evidence that honey raises testosterone, which is generally a good thing for humans and an indicator of overall health. And even in diabetics, giving people up to 125 or 150 grams of honey per day, people who have underlying diabetes, lowers fasting blood glucose. That's a lot of honey. It's a lot of honey for a yeah. diabetic and it lowers fasting blood glucose wow. in an eight-week trial. So again, we're talking about things to exclude high fructose corn syrup if you see that on a label it's it's actually a it's a processed sugar because they extract it from corn it's going to be entirely glucose and in order to get fructose they have to isomerize the glucose they have to change the structure of the glucose molecule lots of problems with high fructose corn syrup the third mm. thing 
maybe something surprising for a lot of people, it's artificial sweeteners. And these are things like Splenda, Sucralose, Ace-K, Aspartame. But it even in my mind extends to things like um, Stevia and monk fruit. And um, I can talk about why in a moment. But the, the more commonly known sweeteners that are not considered natural, Splenda, Sucralose, Ace-K, Aspartame, these, these have some pretty bad effects. At least in animal models, aspartame has been associated with increased anxiety behaviors, which is actually heritable between generations of lab animals. And that's at doses that are at 15% of the FDA maximum human dose equivalents. So mm. 15% of the human dose equivalent of aspartame that's allowed to be given to us as humans you know, like per day, um, that creates heritable anxiety behaviors in lab animals. Sucralose, Splenda, has actually been studied in humans and when combined with carbohydrates and foods, creates an increased insulin response, increased glucose sort of in response to meals, so glucose intolerance, metabolic dysfunction. So it's creating this neurometabolic confusion in the human body. When you're eating some of these sweeteners and your body's receiving a signal that says, the food is this sweet, and your body, after hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, expects it to have a certain amount of calories and it doesn't, it creates this sort of neurological confusion and your body doesn't know what to do in terms of the insulin. So even if we look at stevia and monk fruit, and again, this is probably the whole podcast, these appear to interrupt the way our gut flora communicate. Mm. So we're kind of back to the um, the preview of the next, the answer or the corollary to this question, which is what would you eat instead? And I would say for most people, just use real foods that humans have been eating for hundreds of thousands of years and honey as a sweetener is probably way better. Mm. The last thing is the most controversial thing. And it, for me, um, vegetables do not always serve all humans well. Mm. And yeah. the, what I, the, way I've tried to, the way I've tried to frame this in, in my messaging is, look, if you're thriving, more power to you. Eat a salad, eat some kale, eat some broccoli. But I think that there's a lot of people out there who have some sort of autoimmune issue, some sort of gut issue, whether the gut issue is gas, bloating, constipation, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, or you have some skin issues, psoriasis, eczema, or you have a little bit of a mood issue or a sleep issue or insomnia. They have something going on and they don't find answers. And they might even dig really far. They might go see, quote, alternative physicians, but very few physicians, I think, are going to say to a patient, the spinach you're eating might be causing your problem. Wow. Because it's become such a part of our culture as just a an universally accepted benign and even more than that, like a, a valuable food, a, you know, a beneficent food for humans. And so if you, spinach is a good example though, because if you look at spinach, it's super high in a compound called oxalates, mm. which we know accumulate in the human body. We make a small amount of oxalates, maybe 10 milligrams a day from the breakdown of amino acids in the human body. And when you eat even a cup and a half to two cups of spinach, you're going to seven to 10 X that amount of oxalates in your human body because that amount of spinach has 700 milligrams of oxalates and you're going to absorb about 10%. So just eating a salad at one of these salad places in LA that you think you're doing the right thing could yes. 7X the amount of oxalates in your body. And these compounds are the main component of the most common type of kidney stone for humans, calcium oxalate mm. kidney stones. They accumulate in the joints. They accumulate in our thyroids. They accumulate in breast tissue. We don't fully understand how they're causing problems for humans, but there's clear case studies of them causing kidney failure when people do like smoothie cleanses and they absorb lots of these oxalates. Mm. So you could make a smoothie out of almonds, turmeric, spinach, uh, and chocolate. And those are four of the highest oxalate containing foods. And people have done that and ended up in honestly like on dialysis. Yeah. I have a friend who has uh, kidney stones recently and like that your sounds like you're describing her, her diet to some extent. It's like it's a traditionally healthy right. diet. 
Right. Mm. So it's, so the, the vegetables thing is like, the way that I would frame that is think about what plants are trying to do on the earth. Humans, animals, bugs, we exist in, in conjunction with the plant kingdom. And we are, we're trying to live and plants are trying to live. Plants have an intention to, they're alive. They're trying to move their DNA to the next generation. And so plants must put defense chemicals in their leaves, stems, roots, and seeds to allow them to have some sort of a kind of like Heisman strong arm Mm -hmm. to keep the animals and insects at bay that want to eat them. And so Mm -hmm. for some people, those defense chemicals cause problems. So the four things, seed oils, high fructose corn syrup, artificial sweeteners, vegetables. Now, Mm. I'm shocked that we're not mentioning other things, but I think they fall under some of these categories. You know, the first thing that I would think I would hear is just processed sugar in general, right? And so we we hear that from virtually any health conscious person is I've removed processed sugar, I've removed bread from my diet. You often hear I've removed dairy as well. I was hoping maybe you could touch uh, a bit on dairy because a lot of people do have problems with dairy and removing dairy from their diet can be really helpful, Mm. but there are some reasons they might have problems with dairy. Yeah, dairy's fascinating. Um, So, there are a lot of cultures on the planet that drink a lot of either cow or goat milk dairy, the Maasai, the Samburu, uh, these African cultures, and they exist with profound health. A lot of the Norwegian cultures are based around dairy. Um, within the Western world, we dairy is a very different thing. There's like different types of dairy and different qualities of dairy that humans can eat. I think the biggest problem that most people have is lactose intolerance. And With that, I think that there are ways to eat dairy where you have less lactose in the dairy if you choose to include dairy in your diet. You have yogurts, you have kefirs. Some people say kefir, but I actually looked this up on Google Translate because I heard the two pronunciations. So (laughs) I'm I'm pretty sure kefir is right. Um, But I was over at Erewhon making a smoothie with them because we're going to do a smoothie collaboration, the first animal-based smoothie at Erewhon. And even the guy that I was collaborating with from Erewhon making the smoothie was saying kefir. And I'm sort of smirking to myself thinking, I know how to pronounce this. <laughs> <laughs> so kefir... It's like gif and jif. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. Or Porsche and Porsche. Porsche. Yeah. <laughs> so, so fermented dairy will reduce the amount of lactose. And goat's milk dairy has less lactose. Mm-hmm. The second nuance you have with milk is A1 versus A2 when you're talking about cow's milk dairy. And this refers to the variant of casein. There are a couple of prominent proteins in milk, whey and casein. An A1 casein is a different shape of the casein protein molecule than an A2. And it, it... when it breaks down and is digested by the human body, it makes different molecules, specifically something called beta casomorphin 7 when you have A1. And that seems to be associated with some problems in some humans. So if Mm. you, if you, are having a problem with dairy, you might do better with an A2 dairy. Jersey cows? Jersey cows are all A2, and or some of the manufacturers will just say A2 on the label. I find my daughter mm. drinks a lot of milk, but raw milk sits way better with her. Is that an experience you've had? Yes, raw milk is really interesting. And there's, there's a bunch of memes right now on the internet about people getting arrested in Canada for selling raw milk, but they can traffic like, I don't know, drugs or something, some other type of contraband. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Um, but yeah, ni- one of the nice things about being in LA is it's easy to get raw milk. There's a couple of great farms here that do it. So when I was reintroducing raw milk into my diet, or dairy into my diet in raw cheese and milk over the last maybe year and a half, 
I did some research and found a series of studies which are really compelling. They're observational studies, which are associations, but the associations are compelling and consistent. And the association we see is that if kids grow up drinking raw milk, and these are kids that grow up on farms or off of farms, they have lower rates of eczema, asthma, and allergies in adulthood. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. That's yeah. really cool. And so you could say it's observational, correlation is not causation, but it looks to be a real correlation that's probably connected with raw milk. And some people hypothesize that that's related to um, the uh, different bacterial organisms in raw milk. But there's other people I've seen in the research say, no, it's probably related to the whey protein conformation. So now we're looking at the other protein in milk or one of the other proteins in milk. And when you heat the whey protein past maybe 160 degrees, and most pasteurization processes are heating of milk, they go much beyond 160. The conformation of the protein changes. We know this. This is what happens when you cook an egg, right? Mm. You put it in a pan, the proteins change conformation. The egg goes from clear in the white to firm in the white and actually white. Right. So proteins change in conformation when we heat them. And so something about the whey protein in cow's milk, which is what's been studied, appears to be beneficial, potentially beneficial for humans from an immunologic perspective. And you lose that when you heat the milk. So mm. those are the things I would suggest for people with dairy. But I, 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 I believe dairy is a very powerful tool for people. And like I said, these studies that actually show significant health benefits are compelling. And if you look at the dairy research, even deeper than this stuff, there's a lot of research that including dairy in the diet is beneficial. Kids mm. that have more dairy fat are leaner growing up. So I think for most people, including dairy, uh, either cow or goat, or sheep or camel or something, is is worth considering even into adulthood. Yeah. Let's talk about alternative milks: oat milk, <laughs> rice milk, almond milk. Yeah. Does this have to go, or is this something to include? You know, this is probably something that we could piggyback into the first question. I think it's something to get rid of mm. oh, wow. for a lot of reasons. Mm. Yeah, um, many people. You know, it's funny because when I was at Erewhon, I had this smoothie that we're making in a sample. And there's a woman waiting for a smoothie at the bar. And I said, do you drink cow's milk? And she goes, oh, no. She makes this disgusted face. And I'm thinking, I wonder what her story is. You know, why she doesn't do that. Like most of the people at Erewhon are looking for these nut milks. And I think that we've, for some reason, we believe they're healthier. People have lactose intolerance, all the things we talked about. But if you look at the nut milks, I mean, you can take oat milk as an example. Um, most oat milks or I mean, many of the oat milks that I've seen and um, done content about contain seed oils. Mm. So then and you're glyphosates. Like, and glyphosates, yeah. Well, you're gonna get you're gonna get glyphosate because they're sprayed with pesticides and it's gonna accumulate. Mm. But on the label of many prominent oat milks, it says low erucic acid rapeseed oil, which is just a uh, kind of a uh, a hidden name for canola oil. It's because canola is from rapeseeds and it's low erucic acid. That's basically canola oil. So they're they're containing seed oils. A lot of them contain carrageenan, which is a um, it, technically, it's a sulfated polysaccharide from algae. And it is a long molecule that is, is shown pretty clearly in animal and human studies to cause inflammation and problems in the human gut. Mm. So a lot of these gums are things that are in food. And that, you know, the, the list of things to exclude from your diet could be longer than four. But, you know, gums are another thing. You have gelan gum, xanthan gum, you have carrageenan. These are thickeners in foods that are meant to be thick, but they aren't particularly thick to start with. Some fake Greek yogurts will use this. Some coffee creamers will use it. Some people put them in their smoothies too. Yeah, yeah, yeah to thicken things. Yeah. And they, they do appear to be problematic for the human gut. Mm. I don't think humans were eating a ton of, a ton of algae um, historically and evolutionarily. Um, that's a whole separate story. But um, so the carrageenan ends up in these milks and then you have the actual, cons the, the, the constituents of the milk, almonds or oats or rice or soy, most of which I think are pretty problematic for humans. We have grains, yeah. for instance, and the grains are sprayed with pesticides 
pesticides. Um, the grains contain anti-nutrients. These are essentially the seed babies of plants. And so they're going to have things like phytic acid, which is a large molecule that chelates minerals and actually pulls minerals out of our bodies. Mm. Um, oxalates can do that too. So almonds high in oxalates. And um, there's an interesting case study. It's only, I think, three kids, but these all three of these kids improved when they removed almond products and the kids had all genital urinary issues. So urinary tract infection, blood in their urine, pain with urination. And I think a lot of pediatricians see this, like the almond products problematic for adults and humans because of probably the oxalates in the almonds. So, so nuts and seeds in general, obviously. I mean, when you hear about the healthy diets, one that comes up quite often is the paleo diet. Right. And of course, compared to the standard American diet, many people experience tremendous benefits yeah. from something like that. But they talk about eating plants, animals, nuts, and seeds. And you're saying, well, yes, yeah, some plants, but we all know that intuitively. Like there's a tree in front of this office building. No one goes out and starts chewing on the bark and expects to be nourished by it, right? And so <laughs> there are some plants though, and we'll get to that in a, in a moment when we talk about the foods to introduce into a, a healthy diet. Um, but when you look at nuts and seeds, not just the, the, the milks or milk alternatives that you're consuming, but nuts and seeds themselves seem to be problematic. I think they are for a lot of people. And it's, again, one of these foods that's colloquially considered healthy mm -hmm. that very few doctors will tell you to consider as a problem for your issues that, I mean, in, just in terms of digestion, I think so many people get better from a digestive standpoint when they get rid of nuts and seeds. Mm. Well, let's just make this clarification. Seeds is a, is a technical term that's correct and grains, nuts, beans, and seeds colloquially are all seeds. They're all things that if you plant them in the ground, they will grow into a plant. That's a seed. And it makes sense intuitively that a plant is going to protect its seed. You can imagine this like, you know, this, this baby Moses, or I forget the actual historical biblical story, being cast down the river Nile, completely unprotected. That's what a seed is. It's cast out into the world. And if plants don't put some carapace on there, like a walnut, or they don't put defense chemicals in there, animals are just going to consume them um, ad, ad lib. They'll consume as much as they want. And then all of this chance for these plants to spread their DNA is going to be eliminated. So mm. they do have defense chemicals. They're some of the worst offenders, I think. Mm. Really quickly with defense chemicals, I, I hear what you're saying about plants, but I've also heard people say that about animals, right? Like the, the whole idea of never eat anything that tries to run away from you. Could you say that animals are also releasing some kind of defense chemical to prevent itself from being preyed upon? It's, it's different, right? So depending how the animal is slaughtered, right, um, they may have cortisol but they don't have defense chemicals in the same way that plants do. Plants put these defense chemicals in their leaves, in their stems, in their seeds all the time. It's not that an animal is full of toxic things in the liver or the muscle meat or the blood all the time. Now, every animal has a life cycle, right? And I think that um, we know that all of us are part of a cycle of life and death. And most good um, beef operations I'm aware of use very... Um, very humane methods of, of allowing the cows to have their last day of life, you know, killing the cows where they put them in a space where the cows are not stressed. And then they use a bolt gun, which is an instant way to kill the animal. And that's been shown to have like very little stress on the animal. Mm -hmm. So I think you, uh, of course, I'm not a fan of CAFOs. So clustered animal feeding operations, you know, like factory farming agriculture, putting animals, whether it's cows or chickens or pigs in stressful situations, not good. They're going to release stress hormones, but they don't have the same defense chemicals in their, in their muscles or in their organs because these animals can run away from you. Because when I talk about defense chemicals, 
I often say plants don't want to be eaten and people will say, well, animals don't want to be eaten either. And mm-hmm. I say, well, animals have a different way to... They lo- run. They mm-hmm. run. They locomote. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't seen many plants run away. So they have yeah. had to evolve these things out of necessity. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk more about alcohol, tea, cola, coffee. We'll get to those in a bit. But right now, let's tune into a question from Instagram. Mimi wants to know, what are the four healthiest foods to add to your diet? So really what we're talking about here, healthy most nutrient dense. I added the word four here again because I heard your podcast about here are the four things that I would add into a human diet. But even if you just subtract the things that we talked about a moment ago, the seed oils, the high fructose corn syrup, the artificial sweeteners, and for many people who aren't thriving, veggies, or and I would say that some veggies are probably more problematic than others, the ones that are high in oxalates, et cetera. But now what do we to address Mimi's question head on, what do we add into the diet? What what can I eat now? Because I go to the grocery store and you said I can't eat any of, I walk around, it's like, there's seed oils in that and that and that, there's high fructose corn syrup in that. And I realize when I go to your average grocery store, I go to Sprouts or Ralph's or, most of the food in there isn't food. Mm. Yeah, so this is a good way to think about it. What actually is food? What things don't have labels? Um, what things don't need labels. Uh, And I think thinking about it from the perspective of nutrients is a good framework because it makes it simpler for people. Mm. Most of us weren't taught in elementary school or even secondary school or perhaps even professional school about different micronutrients. And again, I understand it's a dizzying array of things. Calcium, magnesium, manganese, selenium, K2, riboflavin, folate. Who knows what all these things are needed for in the human body? But it's been a fun thing for me to kind of think about the nutrients that we're aware of, because there are many nutrients that we're not even aware of in foods that can be beneficial for humans. But of the ones we know, if I know I need this many things, how do I reverse engineer that? How do I, and this is a minimalist perspective, I think, because I like the simplicity. How did humans get the most nutrient-rich food? I mean, we've been alive, humans have been homo sapiens technically for 350, 450,000 years. Before Mm. that, we were homo erectus, homo habilis, australopithecines. I mean, our, our, our genetic lineage as hominids has been going along a long time. And we didn't have Erewhon or Sprouts. Or anything. <laughs> like, it can't be that hard. How did they survive without Erewhon? <laughs> <laughs> like, it cannot be that hard to, to get the nutrients that humans need to mm. be relatively healthy and functional and reproductively fertile. And so when you look at the nutrients humans need and you think, where are those concentrated in the highest amounts? The answer is unequivocally animal foods. And by mm. animal foods, I mean meat, and organs. And most of us did not grow up eating organs. Mm. So things like liver, heart, bone marrow, we can get into the more exotic organs, spleen, mm. pancreas, kidney, testicle, ovaries, brain, but mm. those are those are pretty pretty fringe for most people. But some of us grew up in ethnic places um, or you know other places in the world, perhaps eastern parts of the world where those things were included in dishes, but most of us didn't grow up eating organs. I never grew up eating organs as a kid other than liverwurst. Mm. Uh, that was the closest thing I got. And so we, if we start with the organs, which I think are the single most nutrient-rich foods on the planet, I would start with a couple of organs. So the, the, the organs that I think humans could include in their diet that will really change the quality of their life by just giving you, it's almost like a video game analogy. Like you just get a life force boost. Mm. You just, you're not getting these nutrients other places very easily. Liver is the first one. Mm. And liver is fascinating. A lot of people are not familiar with the taste. It's very, it's very irony, perhaps yeah. very ferric yeah. um, in taste. And so there's different ways to prepare it. You can freeze it. You can you can grill it. You can get it in a desiccated capsule if you want. But liver is a great source of nutrients that a lot of people don't get. The one that I think of all the time is I could ask people, where do you get your riboflavin? 
Mm. And most people are like, I don't even know what riboflavin is. <laughs> but the, the answer, as far as I can tell, is that you, if you are not eating heart and liver, you're probably not getting enough riboflavin. Why do I need riboflavin? Well, mm. it's part of a lot of important processes in the body, like energy production at the level of mitochondria, mm. functioning of enzymatic systems that affect hundreds of reactions, like MTHFR, which is an enzyme that some people have heard of involved in methylation. So the, the benefits of riboflavin go very deep, and most people are not getting enough if they're not eating liver and heart. There are not really any good sources of riboflavin in the plant kingdom. Mm. Liver and heart are pretty much it. And then you you can go down the list with liver. It's going to be a great source of copper to balance iron. It's going to be a good source of things like vitamin A, vitamin K2, choline, another thing that's critical for brain. And so it's just, it's this powerhouse. It's this really important organ to get. And then you have heart. Well, heart is another good source of riboflavin if people don't want to eat liver, but heart has coenzyme Q10 and the list goes on and on. And so- and the, heart tastes much more like traditional oh, muscle man. meat. Yes, heart, is, heart is so good. It's like, good. Yeah, it's it's tasty, man. But like with liver, it's funny because I've never liked liver. I mean, I have had we the, did shooters. Yeah, exactly. So I had the I've had the best liver and onions, right? And it's really good. But like after a while, you're just chewing and chewing and chewing, and it get, gets really dry and irony. And you talked to me into doing the raw liver, and that is how I eat liver now. Like I prefer to do it raw and do those liver shooters than than yeah, cook it up and eat it. Yeah. And so organs, I think, are the first thing, and then the meat, animal muscle meat is is similar. I mean, muscle is an organ, but we think about them colloquially as two different things. So meat and organs are the, are the first part of the, the equation. Let, let me ask you about one organ. Yeah. Uh, what about tongue, cow tongue? So it's, it's, it's a very tender organ when you cook it in a crock pot. It it's, has a, it's so good, It has man. a unique taste. Yeah. I'm not familiar with any unique benefits okay. of the tongue in terms of nutrients, but um, I've just never seen any literature on it. Okay. Yeah. I'm just curious because I, I love me some lingua. It's, yeah, yeah, delicious. it's delicious. Yeah. But I will say this before we move on from organs real quickly. There's really interesting evidence that I have come across recently regarding the way that organs can specifically affect the organ, the corresponding organ in the human body. So... Mm some of the most interesting studies I've seen are giving brain extract, phosphatidylserine from the brain of cows to elderly people who have cognitive decline and it improves their cognitive function. And mm. this is wild, right? They've tried to do the same thing with plant-derived phosphatidylserine. It doesn't work because phosphatidylserine from animals is different than phosphatidylserine from plants. So you have brain extract from cows improving the cognitive function of humans. You see the same thing with thymus, which is an organ that very few of us remember, but it's, a, it's an immune organ that sits behind the sternum that regresses, it involutes as we age. But in both animal and human trials, when you give thymic extracts, the thymus begins to grow again. And in kids, in human kids, they get less respiratory tract infections when you give them an immune organ. It's really interesting stuff. Yeah, it's really wild to yeah. see how deep kind of the the sort of, I don't know, the, the evolutionary parallels go with these organs. And now, then, yeah. Now, what do you say to people? Because you, you're talking right now about adding in a lot of animal products. And there are a lot of people out there who are vegans or vegetarians. And some of them are really thriving on that. We have a friend, Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, who's been a vegan. She runs a farm uh, for like 28 years. And yeah. you could tell she's just thriving. And so it may be that for some people, for whatever reason, she's able to digest and, and make bioavailable the nutrients that are in plants better than someone else who is struggling with a vegan diet. It's possible. It's possible. I think there are, I've seen, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who benefit from vegan diets, I think for a variety of reasons, perhaps it's cutting out the processed foods. Um, mm. And then I've seen a lot of people, sadly, really benefit for a few years and then get very bad. Yeah. Um, I've had a couple of people on my podcast who were vegans and depression, autoimmune issues. So I think there's something there that we don't fully understand. There are cases, um, 
I might characterize them as outliers Mm -hmm. of people who are vegans and quote unquote thriving. But the majority of people that I've seen and worked with, and perhaps I have a confirmation bias, but I do come in contact with a lot of people don't do well without animal products for more than two or three years. Well, I think that makes sense because what you were talking about earlier, we've evolved over about three to four, maybe more than four million years since we climbed out of trees and started looking around and saying, what else is there to eat? We've evolved eating animals. Now, just because something is natural doesn't mean that it is the most appropriate thing to do, right? I mean, we do things that are not natural. I drove a car down here, right? My ancestors didn't (laughs) drive a car down here. Mm -hmm. uh, And so... But it doesn't mean that it's wrong to do that necessarily, right? It may be the most appropriate thing. It's way better than walking the 76 miles down here once a week. And so um, for some people, they thrive uh, on that diet. Just like I think of my wife, she has a very similar diet to yours, but she eats some vegetables and is thriving on that, right? And she's like just as fit as you as well. So like, I think part of it is like that she's exercising all the time, similar to you, and she's able to take in these calories and use them. But she also doesn't have the digestive issues that someone like me has. I've got an autoimmune condition that I can't barely eat anything, especially certain vegetables. Like if I eat a sweet potato, um, if I eat an entire sweet potato, it feels like my ankles are broken. Mm. And it's like, oh, wow. That's okay. probably oxalates. Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. I think so. Um, but even white potatoes will do... The, oxalates so, in there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Um, but, and, and so a lot of oxalate-rich foods will harm my digestion because mm. I have leaky gut or, or you know, the tight junctions in my mucosal exactly. layer are, are compromised. It, yeah. Isn't it possible too, though, like if you cut out every single oxalate in your diet right now, like isn't there, there could be an adverse effect by just cutting them all, all, all out together, right? Is that true? Yeah, so some people experience a... Um, a dumping syndrome. Mm, <laughs> so, oxalate dumping. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting thing. And it's, yeah. it's. It, I think clinically, it's the body saying, okay, we're ready to get rid of these and all of them come out at once. Oh, yeah. So you get kidney stones. and Some people get kidney stones. Some people get rashes. I mean, it's not bad for everyone, but I have right. heard anecdotally of, of things happening. And so yeah. the recommendation for people, and we can't really know this because Western medicine has never explored this is perhaps eat a little bit of oxalate. You know, don't eat 700 milligrams a day, but maybe 100 milligrams of oxalates per day, which allows a little bit of sweet potato Mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe half a kiwi because kiwi actually has some oxalates in the Mm. fruit. You know, you can look at the high oxalate foods and you can still eat some foods that are moderate oxalates as you kind of do the transition. Yeah. When I found out chocolate was high in oxalates, I was I was so angry. He was depressed for three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Which just calls him to eat more chocolate. Yeah, so so I can eat eat anything, man. Like, I am really lucky. I can digest anything. Like, give me a bucket of nails and it will hurt going down, but I could get them down and be fine. But (laughs) the thing- Make a perfect poop. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) But the problem is like, my, um, I got skin issues. You talked about eczema and psoriasis. I haven't been like diagnosed with it, but um, I know that uh, if I eat dates- if I eat even eggs, like I get this, uh, you know, anti or this uh, in- inflammatory reaction on my face where like I get little da- beard dander if I get, you know, my scalp gets dry right. and stuff. It's crazy. Save that for the autoimmune question. We'll, okay. we'll, we'll double back on that. But I wanted to talk about the two other foods to add in here. You, you already talked about organs and animal protein from meat, dairy, eggs. But then there's certain carbohydrates that you're now okay with. Yeah, this has been the main transition from carnivore, Paul, that was here perhaps the last time. And yes. it's it's fun to do these journeys and to try to to face my own inner dogmatism and to mm-hmm. not really succumb to audience capture and these sorts of things. But mm-hmm. what I learned after about a year and a half, two years on a strict carnivore diet of just meat, 
organs and fat was that long-term ketosis didn't work well for me. And now I've realized that it doesn't work for a lot of people. Mm. Um, and so I added back in carbohydrates, fruit first honey and then fruit. And that helped with a lot of that stuff for a variety of reasons. I think that um, there are perhaps a few vitamins and minerals that are a little easier to get in fruit than they are in, in meat. But I think the majority of it is just that human physiology works well when we have carbohydrates. And mm. thinking about it from a, an anthropologic perspective, I, I really believe that the best characterization of this that I've, that I've come up with or seen is that fruit and carbohydrates, well, let's just say carbohydrates in humans are a signal of abundance. Historically, evolutionarily, if carbohydrates were available, it was usually spring and summer. If we're living by the equator, which is where we believe humans evolved, we had spring and summer most of the year. So we mm. had abundance. But as we moved away from the equator, carbohydrates become more and more a clear signal of abundance. And that connects with human fertility and human thriving. And mm. so the, the molecular mechanisms behind this are consistent in humans. When we eat carbohydrates, the, the body says, it kind of breathes a sigh of relief and goes, okay, now it's time to reproduce. Now it's time to get out in the sun and lift mm. rocks and hunt things and, and be to be a, a thriving human. When we don't have carbohydrates, we're in this metaphorical winter where we're kind of thinking, this is not the time to have babies. And this is maybe the time to kind of huddled together and to, to store our food and not necessarily um, do things that are large energy expenditures. So I think that for most humans, having carbohydrates in your diet year round, which is another year, nuance of the discussion, is a beneficial thing because we see improvements in hormones connected with this abundance. We see decreasing levels of something called sex hormone binding globulin, which allows more free hormones, specifically estrogen and testosterone in mm. women and men respectively. We see better electrolytes. We know that insulin signaling at the level of the kidney, insulin being this peptide hormone released when we eat protein or carbohydrates, but mostly carbohydrates. So it's released from the pancreas and it has many roles in the human body, most of which I believe are very beneficial. Insulin is critical for life, though it gets a bad rap. But at the level of the kidney, it gives this signal, hey, conserve sodium. Mm. And with the sodium, there's all these symporters and antiporters in the different tubules of the kidney come other minerals, come other electrolytes. So you things like calcium, things like potassium, things like chloride, things like magnesium that allow muscles to work well. So after a year and a half on a carnivore diet, I'm in the climbing gym and every time I tense my arm to hold a hold, I get a cramp in my forearm or I get a cramp in my uh, calf. And many people have experienced this um, on ketogenic diets. They just can't even stretch their legs in the morning because they'll get this lightning calf cramp. And that's an electrolyte abnormality that is really not able to be remedied, even with Herculean or massive amounts of salt. Some people are eating 20 plus grams of sodium chloride or mm -hmm. sea salt on a keto diet in an effort to like manage their electrolytes. And it's just not, that to me is just, um, you know, like just really trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't work. Mm. You, you mentioned that uh, long-term ketosis doesn't really um, do good for you and for a lot of people. I know when some people on ketosis talk about carbs, they, they speak of carb cycling or only eating fruits during uh, periods of intermittent fasting. Do you have a schedule for when you do this or is it you'll have steak and bananas at the same time? I'll eat them at the same time. And so the arguments for separating your carbohydrates and your, your meat are generally around something called the Randall cycle, which is a bit technical. But what we know is that the human body likes to do either one fuel or another. It's like we have a gas hybrid car in the human body and it's only going to do gas or electric. That's the sort of, that's the canonical thinking, but we can do a little bit of mix of both. And so people will say that according to the Randall cycle, if you eat fat with carbohydrates, your body can't burn both and you're going to store the fat because it's going to preference the carbohydrates. Mm. But what we know at a deeper level is that if you're eating saturated fats with the carbohydrates, that doesn't seem to create this 
um, this competition as much as polyunsaturated fats. So now mm-hmm. we're back to polyunsaturated fats and seed oils being problematic. So polyunsaturated fats are probably the biggest issue with the Randall cycle in terms of competing things. So if you eat or, if you're eating polyunsaturated fats with carbohydrates, that may affect this sort of um, this sort of tra- railroad track. Uh, conundrum mm-hmm. that we run into. We can only burn one of these at a time and you're going to store the other one type of thing. But in in me and the people I've worked with, I don't see any issue eating carbohydrates with meat or fruit, or like meat or fat or any of these things. I think it it results in no metabolic issues. It's something that we would have done evolutionarily. Like when yeah. I was with the Hadza in Tanzania, which I think is something I did since the last time I was here, um, you know, we're out hunting and we get an animal and the next thing they do, they're climbing a tree to get a, a beehive and they're handing me a piece of honeycomb as they're handing me a piece of liver right. that we cooked on an open wow. fire. So yeah. uh, it's it's happening at the same time. There's never this like, oh, I need to eat this and then I need to eat this. I, I think that if you really look at the the biochemistry to, at a granular level, there's not a real problem there for most people. Mm. So well, your I, banana I, yeah. and steak smoothies are totally okay. <laughs> totally okay. <laughs> it's, it's easy, so, right? It's so delicious. Put some liver in there. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I guess you have to pay a lot of attention to how you're preparing those saturated fats, right? Because going out to restaurants today and buying them a lot of them are cooked in some of the oils you're you're telling us yeah, to avoid. So one yeah. of the most fun things that I do now with my content is this, I, don't, I call it like health journalism. And I put on the mic and my buddy's kind of filming me surreptitiously, like he's being kind of subtle in the background. And we walk into restaurants and I go, well, I have a food allergy. Can you tell me what your food is cooked in? And it's interesting understanding what's happening there. And most restaurants are cooking in seed oils. They're mm. using corn or canola or soybean or safflower. And most of them are doing it thinking that they're doing it correctly. I mean, Chick-fil-A uses peanut and on their website, they say peanut oil is healthy for humans. It's heart healthy. Again, it goes back to this thing that we talked about earlier. It may lower LDL, but then it raises the oxidized form, like the broken down sort of mm-hmm. oxidized, really atherosclerotic form of LDL. Mm-hmm. But most of these businesses don't understand. And the consumer demand has been polyunsaturated oils because that's what we've been told is healthy for the last, really the last 50 to 70 years, but especially in the last 30 years. McDonald's used to use tallow in their fryers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, until like 92 or something. Well, which yeah. is rendered beef fat and yeah. is very healthy for humans. It contains mm. stearic acid, which is an 18 carbon saturated fat that is very beneficial for our mitochondria and, mm. and healthy for humans. Mm. And then we we'll switch to peanut or I think they use sunflower or safflower now because of the consumer demand. It was driven by this one, I forget his name, but there was this very rich uh, man who got heart disease and blamed it on the tallow for, mm-hmm. <laughs> from McDonald's. I'm not That's sure right. how, how he made the causal connection, but he, he was, yeah. you know, he was, in, he was really instrumental in getting them to switch. Mm. And so now people think it's more beneficial. So a lot of restaurants yeah. are cooking in that stuff. What what do you feel, how do you feel about other meats like chicken, pork? Um, mm. So this gets a little nuanced. At the, at the highest level, I think if you're eating animal meat, it's going to be very nutritious for humans and mm-hmm. it's going to result in better health. And it's going to get you a lot of the nutrients that you're not always going to get if you're eating exclusively plant foods. Mm. But if you take it a level deeper, you find that beef or ruminants, things like deer or elk or lamb, uh, it's they eat a diet that is ancestrally or evolutionarily consistent because they're fed on grass. Mm. But it's very hard to get a properly fed chicken. Right. <laughs> because almost no chickens in the United States are fed bugs and dirt, bugs and worms and leaves. They, they just, yeah. they have to be fed grains. Yeah. But chickens don't eat grains in the wild. So essentially mm. we have nearly 100% of all chickens, which make all the eggs and chicken meat that we're eating who are grain fed, like the equivalent yeah. of a grain fed cow versus a grass fed cow. Okay. And pork is the same way. Yeah. Wild 
uh, wild pigs will root and eat roots and bugs and worms or little, they'll eat little animals. I mean, they'll eat little like uh, mouse, mice and rats and things like that. Oh, so wow. that's like a, that's a real diet for a pig, but that's not what they're feeding them right. in feedlots. Yeah. Um, they're feeding them grains and they're mostly feeding them corn and soy. Uh, so what happens with monogastric animals and humans are a monogastric animal in um, distinction to a ruminant animal with multiple stomachs, we have one stomach. Mm -hmm. Monogastric animals cannot get rid of polyunsaturated fatty acids easily. So if you feed a chicken or you feed a pig corn and soy, they accumulate polyunsaturated fats in their cell membranes. Oh, wow. Which means their fat content increases in this polyunsaturated fat, this linoleic acid particularly that we find in seed oils that I think is harmful for humans at evolutionarily inconsistent levels. Mm -hmm. So if you look at a wild chicken or a wild pig, 4 to 5% linoleic acid in the fat. A domestically raised chicken or pig, 15 to 20% linoleic acid in their fat. Oh, wow. And just for comparison, canola oil, 20 to 25% linoleic acid, a soybean oil, 55% linoleic acid, grapeseed oil, 65% linoleic acid. That's why seed oils, I think, one of the reasons they're so harmful for humans. Mm. Tallow, 2% linoleic acid. Oh. Butter, 2% linoleic acid. Ghee, 2% linoleic acid. So... I think people could run into problems eating lots of bacon, right? Yeah. You have a very fatty No, not cut, bacon too. Right? <laughs> but again, it's like first chocolate, now bacon. It's the, like chocolate-covered bacon. Yeah, uh, right. I mean, they have bacon-flavored chocolate bars. Yeah, they do, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sure they sell them at Erewhon for $25. Right, uh, exactly, yeah. Like, okay, There's so, even a bacon milkshake. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. But like, you know, what you do, like what you do occasionally is is not as big a deal as what you do consistently, mm. right? Like so, like bacon every once in a while, probably not a big deal. Sure. Um, chocolate every once in a while, probably not a big deal unless you have bad kidney stones or mm. Joshua's ankles, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oxalate <laughs> foods, right. those ankles. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, like making it the majority of your diet is probably not a great idea because yeah. of we're ultimately what we're thinking about is membrane health at the level of cells, mitochondria. The nuclear memories, all these type of things with yeah. linoleic acid. Yeah, does yeah, that make sense? Yeah, it does make it sense. got a little technical. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, I, all right. So, uh, animal fats, um, animal protein, fruits, and then what would be like the fourth thing that you would? I mean, well, we had all four there. So oh, we did. Okay. But let me just, uh, I'll recap for everyone here. Yeah. So, the, the <laughs> foods to remove seed oils, high fructose corn syrup, artificial sweeteners like aspartame and Splenda, but maybe even stevia. And then for most people, vegetables, they may benefit from re removing vegetables as well, including sh processed sugars, bread, grains, potatoes, nuts, and seeds. Chocolate, bacon. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you're talking about adding things, uh, Paul thinks that adding organs, specifically the liver, bone marrow, and heart, for essential nutrients, also protein from meat, dairy, and eggs, carbs from fruit and honey, and then also animal fats like mm. tallow would be beneficial. We're going to talk more in a bit about veganism, about some nuances around this as well. We'll talk more about why Paul left the uh, carnivore side. Yeah. I and, love that you did that, man. That, like you didn't <laughs> hold on to it too strongly. It's such a good example because people do get dogmatic yeah. to a to a, a point where they're actually having a negative effect on their life, but they got to stick to their beliefs. So I, I want to commend you, man, for like letting letting that go. Thanks, man. Yeah. We're also going to debate about coffee. <laughs> Mal, I'm going to need you to get some more coffee for me. I know oh, Alabama has some questions for you as well. But first, let's dive into another question here from YouTube. From Scott, why did Paul decide to let go of the carnivore dogma and become an omnivore again? So it's funny because we had you and Rich Roll on the podcast together. And as I mentioned, the Venn diagram between the two of you, and you're two of my favorite human beings on earth, 
you just happen to approach nutrition appreciably differently. Although when we got close, you realized, no, both of you avoid most of the same things. Mm. And you realize like, oh, health and dis-ease has a lot to do with the avoiding of things, right? Now, you had some specific issues around carnivore and, and ketosis in, in general. And it sounds like you already talked a bit about the electrolyte issues. Um, I've also gone down that path before. I had some cortisol issues, uh, uh, sleep issues related to cortisol. It sounds like that was something that you struggle with as well. Yeah, we know that when you eliminate carbohydrates, it kind of goes back to this abundance signal for the human body. When you eliminate carbohydrates, your body produces stress stress chemicals, stress hormones, mm. both catecholamines, things like epinephrine and um, norepinephrine, and cortisol, which is a, a steroid hormone, uh, different than epinephrine and norepinephrine. So you're producing multiple stress hormones, which is interesting because if you look at the human body's physiology, you look at anthropology, carbohydrates are prioritized. I mean, the Hadza, the, the, the Khoisan in Botswana and Namibia, they're, they're hunting, but they also really like carbohydrates in the form of berries or fruit mm. or honey, things like this. So, so we know that if you eliminate those things, the body goes, well, stressful. And some people, when they do ketogenic diets, will say, oh, I have so much energy. And I just wonder, are you just really hopped up on stress hormones, oh, right? Wow. You just have lots of adrenaline, which mm. is the colloquial term for epinephrine and nor norepinephrine. So, and then you definitely have cortisol, which rises, and that can create some pretty serious uh, sleep disturbances for a lot of people. Mm. So um, in general, I think in our lives, it is a good thing for our longevity and quality of life to minimize cortisol which is a stress hormone. And so mm. we know this as humans, you know, you're in traffic, you have a stressful encounter, you have a fender bender, this is cortisol, right? Mm -hmm. You have something stressful at home, I don't know, like a, a natural disaster, a tornado, or mm. the car breaks down, or the roof caves in, like this is cortisol. These things are not good for humans long-term. Yeah, yeah it, but we do some things in our life, like being in ketosis, or like getting into an ice bath or a sauna, those things also will help, will produce cortisol, right? There's some nuance here. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> yeah. So. There, there looks to be pretty good data for saunas. But we know that the human metabolism goes up in a sauna. And so if you deplete your liver glycogen, you can create a stress response in a sauna, which may not be great for humans either. I was actually mm -hmm. talking to my friend Andrew Huberman about this. And he confirmed that most saunas will raise cortisol. And so I think that is it, is it one of these things kind of like plant molecules where you can look at it through one lens and say, hey, here's a benefit. But, but then I might, take a step back and say, but what's the net effect on humans? Like we can look at some of these plant defense chemicals and people will isolate the plant defense chemical and look at one aspect of what it does in humans and say, look, it's beneficial, therefore you should eat broccoli. And I found it interesting in my learning to step back and say, well, what about the other things that that plant chemical does in the human body? It's possible that there's no real net benefit or it's a net negative in humans. And so for me, <laughs> I think that in every individual human, they have to make a decision about how much stress they put their body under. Because we know that if you get into a cold plunge, you're going to get tons of catecholamines, like massive amounts. Mm. You're going to get a lot of catecholamines. What and then are you're those? Gonna, what's that? What are those? Uh, catecholamines are things like uh, dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine. Like okay. they are, dopamine is technically considered a, um, a uh, like a reinforcing chemical, but epinephrine and norepinephrine are stress hormones colloquially. So I think we have to decide like how much stress do we want as a human? And a lot of people I think are overstressing themselves, even with saunas and cold plunges because mm. they, have an, they have an overfilled stress bucket. Their allostatic load is massive. And so I think that for some people who have 
really mastered the art of self-control and have very low stress levels. And um, a little bit of that environmental stress may be good. But I think that for a lot of people, um, too much sauna and too much cold is actually going to be an overstressor for them. So Mm -hmm. this gets to your point um, that there's a lot of nuance in these things. And I think that in general, and I would stand by this, cortisol is probably not a great thing for humans, um, regardless of how it's produced. And so it, it gives me pause when I'm talking to people and saying like, yeah, sauna every day for two hours and the more you do the better like actually you'll you'll run yourself into the ground yeah. with that yeah wow yeah i think that makes a, a lot of sense and yet i want to throw some nuance in here because there are also people who thrive and i, I wrote a few names down because there are people i've listened to to for their nuanced perspective there are people who thrive on a ketogenic diet like dom diagostino or dr ken barry or Professor Bart Kay, or Dr. Anthony Chafee. And you see some of these people, and A, they look great, but they've been doing this ketogenic diet or even a completely carnivorous diet for years and years and years, and they don't have some of the same problems you're talking about. Is that just individual um, uh, ability to to sustain uh, on a ketogenic diet, or is it something different? I don't know. Um, I think that there's more to that story um, I haven't seen any of their blood work, you know, sure. all we yeah. have is their, um, their, their perspective. All we have is their, what they're telling us. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, for instance, you know, I, I've done a couple of podcasts with Ken Berry. We have different views on carbohydrates, mm-hmm. um, specifically things like fruit and honey. And on the last podcast I did with Ken, I said, Hey, let's look at your blood work. And he goes, well, I haven't done it in like three years. And I said, well, you haven't done it in three years, man. Like, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? And yeah. I, we'll get some blood work, man. And, and I still haven't heard like from him, hey, let's look at your blood work. Like, what's your thyroid doing? And, um, you know, uh, some of the other names uh, I'm not familiar with, Bart K. Um, Anthony uh, uh, Chafee claims to be thriving, but there were people who claimed to be thriving and got blood work and found out they had massive folate deficiencies. Like Michaela Peterson is a good example. Jordan Peterson's daughter was a, a staunch advocate of only eating meat mm-hmm. and would consistently um, disagree with me that organs were not necessary for humans. And um, she got some blood work, perhaps, I don't know why, maybe she was thinking about having another baby, she recently got married. Her folate's like absolutely in the toilet. <laughs> like she has no folate. Her folate is below the clinical level of normal. She's folate deficient, which is going to cause massive issues. We know that folate deficiency is associated with neural tube defects in infants and developing fetuses. And so what is Michaela doing now? She's eating liver. <laughs> so I think that unless there's a full disclosure and an opening of the kimono, as some might say, in these cases, we just don't know how well these people are doing. And um, But there are some people like her who actually can't eat certain things like even fruit it sounds like would have a detrimental effect on someone who is so yeah and we have an autoimmune question here in fact you know what let's just dive into the autoimmune question and that'll bring us back into this conversation it's from charlotte on facebook why is there so much talk of autoimmune disease these days what is it what causes it and is there a way to cure it Isabella also asks, what are the roles of stress and trauma in the gut microbiome in disease? Yeah, and I think these are all related. That's why I coupled those two questions together here, because if I have one criticism of this whole health space is we're rarely talking that much, and I think it's because we don't know a whole lot about the gut microbiome. And I have found that most of my, my gut issues are, are based on if the fact that I was on a, antibi- a benign antibiotic for 13 years. Mm. And it completely carpet bombed my, my gut and caused all kinds of issues. 
And then from there, there's uh, SIBO, uh, small, back, uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and you know, the candida associated with that. And so some people, like Michaela, they, she may eat fruit, and all of a sudden, it triggers this huge candida response. And we never really seem to talk much about that. But maybe you can shed a light on it here on The Minimalist Podcast. So what question are you specifically asking me here about? Well, well we're, we're, di- we're diving into autoimmune, but I think we start with by talking about there's, there's a lot we don't know. Right. And some people who eat fruit have a bad reaction to it for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's a, there's a contextual effect of all these things, right? Um, some people have um, one kidney and they can't eat a ton of meat because they will not process it well, right? Mm. And so I think that there's a context for all of this. The the nuance that I would suggest is that I have not seen any evidence that fruit causes these issues, right? That honey causes diabetes. There's actually evidence that giving honey to diabetics, and I think we talked about this before the podcast, I don't think we were recording. I think there's evidence that giving honey to diabetics at large amounts, 125 grams a day, actually lowered fasting glucose. So I don't think honey causes diabetes. I don't think fruit causes candida overgrowth. People ask me that a lot. But if you have diabetes and you eat fruit, you're probably going to see your blood sugar go up. So Mm -hmm. there's a contextual effect. If you have SIBO and you eat fruit, if you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, let's clarify that for people, and your motility isn't working, there are these migrating motor complexes in the gut that kind of sweep things down, small intestine to the ileocecal, um, you know, uh, sphincter, and then into the cecum, which is the colon. And if, if those that sweeping effect, if that sort of downward motion of the, the small intestine into the colon, of these migrating motor waves is not working, then, then the bacteria tend to move up from the colon mm-hmm. into the small intestine. And food that is normally digested um, in the small intestine or absorbed, nutrients that are usually absorbed in the small intestine and don't make their way to the colon, uh, comes in contact with bacteria that usually reside in the colon. This mm-hmm. can result in bloating and other symptoms for people. And that's symptomatically what we call small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. But it appears to be a problem with the neurons and the immune system attacking the neurons and this migrating motor complex and the motility of the gut. Now, fruit didn't cause that, but for some people, it may not be the best thing in the moment. So I agree, there is this contextual effect and there may be some changes in terms of what you do while you're healing that. But the underlying question, which I think is what Mallory was asking, is what is causing these autoimmune issues? And I think that the autoimmune issues are talked about more because they're increasing in prevalence. It's there's always a question when we do this. Is it is it people are talking about it more or we're testing for it more or people are experiencing more? And my suspicion is that people are really experiencing more autoimmune, yes. like legitimately. And and I would, my hypothesis would be it's because we are eating a less and less evolutionarily appropriate diet for humans and that the more we damage our guts, I think most autoimmune disease begins in the gut. And by that, I mean stomach, small intestine, large intestine around which tissues are wrapped where most of the immune system resides. So you have this delicate connection between the outside world and the inside world separated by a single cell layer. And the inside world is our immune system and things like the pyrus patches or these the lamina propria of the um, surrounding tissues in the intestines. And so much of the immune system lives there. And so when that balance is disrupted and we get this colloquial leaky gut, and a lot of things trigger this, alcohol does it, for many people, I think lectins in foods like grains, wheat mm. being the most commonly understood thing, that is the pathology of celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity, that a lectin, um, a plant defense chemical, if you will, in these things triggers damage to the gut, opening of the gap junctions, and by damage, it can even be the body responding to something that it perceives as a bacteria. And that seems to be what happens with gluten. The fragment of this molecule 
Um, some types of wheat perhaps being worse than others, looks like a bacteria. And so the body responds in the way it should if you get food poisoning with Campylobacter or Salmonella. And it says, holy moly, I'm going to open the gap junctions and flood in a bunch of water and the immune system is going to go in there. The body thinks you're getting food poisoned with some of these foods, beans mm. being a big offender, other lectin-containing foods um, are the nuts and seeds and grains. And so if we're damaging our guts, alcohol, environmental toxins, these things, then the immune system is on alert. And you gave a really, I think, illustrative example of some things you eat just trigger your immune system immediately because, yes. and probably you're absorbing more oxalates because your gut is, what we say, like uh, fenestrated, like porous, because mm -hmm. there is this increased absorption, and there's inflammation. So it, it all kind of comes down to the gut at some level and the foods that are really offensive. We talked about carrageenan and these gums that can also irritate the gut, but it's pervasive. So many things we're doing, potentially glyphosate, this, this environmental pesticide that is now finally being appreciated as a problematic thing. So many things can injure this really delicate layer of our guts and mm. create, I think, the, the kindling for an autoimmune condition. And then the immune system wrapped around the gut begins to kind of attack things that it's not supposed to and gets confused. And that is where autoimmunity occurs. You mm. described something that sounds like seborrheic dermatitis with your beard, yeah. which is on the same spectrum, um, which we call an atopic spectrum of eczema and asthma. And I have eczema historically, and that was one of the things that got better when I did a carnivore diet. Mm. So that was a good thing for me in um, in connection with the the challenges I faced longer term. But mm -hmm. you were saying when you eat certain foods, you react. Yeah. And this is, I think, what happens to a lot of people. The confusing thing for most of us is that you get seborrheic dermatitis, you might get ankle issues, maybe you get something else, right? Mm -hmm. You might get psoriasis or a My gut hair issue. Grows back. <laughs> you don't need it, man. <laughs> You're good. so handsome already. I don't think you get any more handsome. <laughs> like, you know, there's all sorts of autoimmune issues, thyroid mm -hmm. issues, people have. Um, all kinds of G issues, whether it's inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, the list of autoimmune diseases is, is colossal. Mm -hmm. But everyone gets a little different manifestation because we all have a different genetic tapestry upon which all of this is playing out. Yeah. And some people have different susceptibilities when their immune system becomes activated. Mm. Everyone has a different weakness in the armor and that's where it happens. Yeah. And, and it can go as, as far as uh, heart disease, I think for some people or other things like that. What's really crazy for me is um, I used to do like the bulletproof coffee. So butter and then I would add some collagen to it. And when I did that collagen, like it gets, it's crazy how bad it gets. And in my mind, I just didn't, I just didn't know any better. And I still really don't know any better. But I thought like, oh, like my, this collagen is basically telling my body like, hey, you can shed that layer of skin because now we have new nutrients that we can like replace that skin with, which I know is totally like crazy. But, um, but yeah, like what, how would collagen create that, that effect? So when you think about the way the, the hydrolyzed collagen is made, it's it's like it's heated and it's extracted oh, and most of it okay. is coming from the hooves and hides of animals. Yeah, Most of that collagen is not super high quality. Okay, So you're presenting your body with a molecule that it just doesn't recognize. Mm. Kind of in the same way we're talking about these other molecules. And it, the body is going, I don't recognize that. Yeah, I'm going to create a little immune response against it because I think it's a bacteria. Wow. And then as you may have this tendency toward your immune cells tend to react here, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's the collagen coming to your beard and just like shooting out the pores, right? right? <laughs> but it's, I think that it's, your body isn't really processing that well. And mm. so, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of those, those sort of, those, I mean, they're, they're a big fad today. Yeah, they uh, are. But yeah. I think that they, they, those can even cause problems for people too. They're just, they're extracted from hooves and hides and they're hydrolyzed and heated. And it's a protein that your body just hasn't recognized. So it's really astute of you and insightful to realize that was the connection. Yeah. Many people would just say, I'm doing the right things. And so many people do things like that um, and don't under, don't make the connection. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I try to pay attention. Like I do feel like I know my body pretty well, but yeah, it's like I said, um, eggs is one I've just recently noticed in the last like year or two. 
Um, and dates, I cannot believe because of how high I guess they are in oxalates. Like I don't, I don't know, but I realize dates cause an inflammatory response. It's interesting. Too. I mean, some people do react to certain fruits, right? Yeah. Um, some fruit does have moderate amounts of oxalates. Plantains are high in oxalates. Mm. Kiwis high in oxalates. I've heard conflicting data with dates and oxalates, oh. but they they certainly may have some. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But it's, if you understand that, then you can just sort of avoid that food. Not all food is good for all people. Yeah. And that's that's I think what this is about is understanding. And making people curious about the fact that maybe what they've been told historically, mm-hmm. there's some, there's more to it, right? There's yeah. some nuance there. Yeah. And that that if you navigate through that, then people end up with higher quality life. You don't have to have flaky, itchy beard. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 We're going to check in with the Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on uh, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. We'll put links to Dr. Paul Saladino's handles in the show notes as well over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. Now, Paul, generally what we do here is we answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We call them minimal maxims. They're in the show notes so people can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. But this time we're doing something a little special. We have several lightning round questions for you. So Ryan, TK, and I, we're just going to step back and let you do your thing. You'll have 60 seconds. And if you go over time, Professor Sean will give you the gong. And Jordan will drag you out of the studio. <laughs> before, before we start, impromptu requests. Is there a way I can get in uh, three additional lightning round questions? Yeah, why not? Sure. All right. <laughs> Actually, well, let's save those for the talk aboutables on the private podcast. Sounds good. Sounds good. There, there we go. Yeah. All right. First question here. Ruby. Why isn't the vegan diet optimal for human health? No fair the time. Okay, I was going to say the timer starts. What are you reading the question? <laughs> Give me those three seconds back. <laughs> the vegan diet is not optimal for human health because it lacks so many of the nutrients that are found exclusively in animal foods. They generally start with the letter C, though that's just an easy way to remember them. Creatine, carnitine, choline. Then we get to the other Cs, the non-Cs, answering taurine, vitamin K2, B12, it, riboflavin. It, it, you need these nutrients to thrive as a human. We've been eating animals throughout our history. I believe animals and eating them was one of the key events that allowed us to become human. We see this incredible increase in brain growth size about 2 million years ago when we started hunting more. It's a correlation, but it's quite compelling. So I think the vegan diet is not optimal for most humans because it is both deficient in the key nutrients that allow us to thrive and it allows and it results in a large load of toxins like we talked about. So you're concentrating the toxins and you're getting the least nutrient-rich foods. But mm. if someone is thriving on that diet, you're not telling them they should change anything, I'm commanding you to do yeah. anything. It's simply if you're struggling with yeah. it, if you're struggling with it, consider the fact, become curious mm. and and understand there are I, I, other ideas that, that um, there are other options that might result in health. Another question from Horace. If you could eat only the same meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Ooh, great question. <laughs> I actually thought about this last night as I was eating most of this meal. So I, my favorite steak is a sirloin flap steak. It's delicious if you guys haven't had it. I'm going to eat it with some frozen raw liver, a little bit of um, heart. Um, I mean, I guess this question's so easy because I can just have a colossal meal, right? I need to have a little bit of thymus in there too. <laughs> and then for um, carbohydrates, I'm going to eat some fruit or some fruit juice. I really like making fresh squeezed orange juice these days. Now, how is that ancestrally consistent? Orange juice. <laughs> You're in my 60 seconds. Save it for the talk about yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How do the rules work here? Yeah. <laughs> I make them. That's right. I guess so. We, we Let me finish and then I'll answer your question. Okay. Right. So we get orange juice and then uh, I'm going to have some dairy because I love it. I'm either going to have some raw milk, either cow or goat, and a little bit of honey and maple syrup. It's probably going to be my meal. Nice. 
Nice. Ooh, still under 60 still seconds. About, still about 15 seconds to respond to the interloper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a LeBron move, by the way. You knocked away the ball, you blocked the first shot attempt, and he still drains the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I think that we see that cultures make things like, the, we, we do process foods within cultures historically. Evolutionary cultures process things. They grind grains. They, mm-hmm. um, they, they, do, they milk animals. They will make juice out of things to remove the fibers. And so I think that... Um, People would say, oh, that's so many oranges. You're drinking five oranges. Yeah, it's delicious and I love it and I'm still (laughs) insulin sensitive. And so someone though who struggles with uh, fungal overgrowth in their intestines, they may struggle with something like that. They may. It's the context we talked about earlier, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think the orange juice is causing that. Fix the root cause. And let's just add this for people as a little bit more of of something to think about. Ask the question, what is causing this fungal overgrowth, Mm -hmm. right? People want to believe or we there has been this idea this ethos that that fruit is causing candida and that's just not true that's mm. not the case it is dysbiosis probably coming from something else in your diet that is causing the candida to overgrow mm. candida candida whatever um, and so find the root cause correct that if you have SIBO and you have a motility issue figure out what is triggering that immune reaction against your neurologic system in your gut the fruit isn't causing it and the goal is to be able to help people improve the 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 basically the variety of their diet eventually. This is different than I used to think. And this is kind of a fun thing. Like, I'll say this, I want people to be able to eat as many foods as possible. And sometimes eliminating foods temporarily is very powerful. And then getting them back is a celebration. Another question from Lillian. Try to steal my time. (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong with tap water and what kind of water do you drink? Now, before you answer that... Placed in front of Dr. Paul Saladino right now is uh, Mountain Valley, mm. flat water. Cheers. Mm-hmm. Cheers. <laughs> oh, I'm out of I'm out, uh, yeah. Alabama. Oh, but um, tap water is a bit of a problem. 60 seconds, go. So if you go to the Environmental Working Group, they have a really great database of the analysis of tap waters where you are. And you mm. can see what's in the tap waters. From most cities, Austin, Los Angeles, wherever, it's 70 to 200 contaminants on the order of pesticides, organic solvents used in industry, uh, known carcinogens, uh, birth control, hormones, other Mm. pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, And that's not not counting potentially problematic things with fluoride in drinking water, which is quite a controversial thing. Chlorine used in the water to uh, sterilize it and chlorine derivatives. So tap water is a nightmare. Um, Be intentional with your water. You can also go to most of the water companies. Mountain Valley is a great one. I don't have any affiliation. I don't know if you guys do. Mm, um, no, no. They have on their <laughs> website, they have on their website a an actual download of the certificate of analysis and it, there's nothing really bad in Mountain Valley. So that's great. But test the water that you're drinking. Know what the COA is. I usually drink Mountain Valley when I'm in the States. In Costa Rica, I drink uh, coconut water yeah. from coconuts. Mm. Oh, wow. That's great. And also reverse osmosis is an option. So we'll put a link to the ewg.org slash tap, I believe it is. I first learned about that from you. Oh, and cool. it, it terrified me enough to make sure that I have a reverse osmosis filter uh, in my kitchen because any drinking water I have at home, I don't want it to be contaminated. So I'll put a link to the reverse osmosis thing that I use as well. I just want to say, if you use that link, just uh-huh. be prepared to be freaked out a little bit. Because it's not a matter of how much of this is in your drinking, or if this is in your drinking water, it's a matter of how much. So yeah. like, no matter where you go, I remember we grew up in Hamilton County, or near Hamilton County in Ohio, and it had like the best drinking water in the whole country. Still, crazy amount of contaminants in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's terrifying. Uranium sometimes is in yeah. the drinking water. Oh, 
Another question here. Can I make a comment about the reverse osmosis before you we go jump for on? it? Um, mm-hmm. Some people, when I say that I use reverse osmosis, because you can get a countertop reverse osmosis. It's very easy. You don't have to put the whole thing under the sink and hire a plumber. You can get a countertop reverse osmosis on Amazon. And, and it's great. It seems to work really well. Some people say, what about the minerals? And I think two things. I think you can remineralize it pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And if you're eating a diet that's nutrient rich, you probably don't need to remineralize your water, um, depending on what you're drinking. But if you're worried about minerals in your RO, just remineralize it or just eat nutrient-rich foods. Yeah. Question here from Valentina. Besides diet, what are three ancestral activities that would improve the average person's life? Okay, here we go. So I think that most of these for me are around circadian rhythms and sleep. And it's avoiding blue light at night, sleeping at a consistent schedule. One of the things I've noticed living at the equator is that the sun sets and rises about the same time every day. So I have a consistent bedtime and a consistent waking time. And if you're anywhere in the world, that's going to change very slowly throughout the world, like if you're far from the equator. So Mm -hmm. I think a consistent bedtime, a consistent waking time, light in the eyes first thing in the morning, and then avoidance of artificial light at night. Those are really critical things for me, along with grounding perhaps, which I think is very underrated Mm. and very hard to do in a lot of cities. Being in Los Angeles, it's been a real challenge to ground. I can't just walk around in bare feet Mm. um, in Erewhon and I won't get grounded if I'm there anyway. So I have to find a patch of grass, sit there in bare feet. And there's surprising amount of good evidence with grounding. So grounding plus really controlling your sleep cycles similar bedtime, similar waking, and light in the eyes in the morning really helps set the circadian rhythm. Dude, you would totally fit into Air One with with bare feet. Man. But there's no grounding mat. <laughs> no, that's true, but you would not be out of place. You're seated on a grounding I, mat right now. So I saw, I'm so I tripped over the wires. <laughs> that's, that's actually our explosive booby trap. <laughs> You can check out our grounding episode we did with uh, Clint Ober. Uh, amazing episode. People absolutely love that. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Jeffrey has a question for us. What are the three most common environmental toxins in our lives today? This is a tough one in 60 seconds. I think I'm going to start with xenoestrogens, things like phthalates, parabens, um, it's in plastics and they're everywhere. Oh, so yeah. you um, you go to Starbucks and you get a coffee, which I'm not a fan of, and I think we're going to talk about that. Mm. And that coffee, that plastic coffee cup is lined with plastic. That, that paper coffee cup is lined with plastic. Mm. And that coffee plastic has PFAs, parafluoroalkylated substances in it. The butcher paper they use at Whole Foods, and I haven't figured out a, a great workaround for this. The butcher paper they use at Whole Foods for my meat has plastic on the inside, which could have xenoestrogens and PFAs. Every can you're using, even if it's BPA-free, has xenoestrogenic compounds in it because there's BPS and BPE. Every soda you're drinking, everything in a can, even things in a box, boxed water, boxed coconut, uh, water are lined with plastic. Wow. And that plastic contains compounds that are going to mimic estrogen or be endocrine disruptors in the human body. And that was just the first one. Give him a bonus minute, please. <laughs> <laughs> so then, we have, then you might have glyphosate, the pesticides, those are everywhere. And then mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, we could probably just stop there. Those are the big ones. I think if you're, if you're plastic and glyphosate, you're getting the big ones. But it, I think mm. that it's just, it just goes back to avoid Avoid plastics as much as you can. Don't drink water out of plastic. Think about the things your food is packaged in. And I can't avoid it. I'm not perfect in this. Most meat comes in packaged in plastic, but if you Mm -hmm. minimize, then you'll be getting a lower dose of these things. Yeah. We have a couple questions from Tammy. What's her first question here? Can I still be healthy if I drink coffee? You better say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Does my time start when I start talking? (laughs) Oh, sorry, you're out of time, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) I wish we could go into that further. I think that, I think you can be, right? It's kind of like we talked about. A little bit of bacon, a little bit of chocolate, a little bit of coffee, not a big deal. I will say this. 
the quarter life of caffeine is 12 hours, which means that if you drink coffee at eight o'clock in the morning and you're drinking one cup, you're getting 200 milligrams of caffeine. Mm. And that 200 milligrams is going to equal 50 milligrams 12 hours later. That's what a quarter life means. Oh, wow. Okay. So you have 50 milligrams of caffeine in your bloodstream at 8 p.m. That is going to affect your sleep cycles without a doubt. Now, if you're drinking two cups or some of the my compatriots are drinking coffee at 11 o'clock, <laughs> right? In the morning right now. So you're going to have a quarter of the caffeine in your current coffee 12 hours later. So I worry that as a society, we are chronically disrupting our sleep cycles mm. with coffee. That's probably the biggest problem that we have. And we're, that's just the beginning. What about energy drinks? What we're using at the gym at 2 p.m.? in the afternoon, right? Pre-workouts that we're using at the gym at 4 p.m. or 6 p.m. So it's just sleep cycles yeah. are getting, are really getting besieged today. It's so, it's so weird. Like you have people like Josh and my grandmother who are two the same. I mean, I'm just kidding. No, but, <laughs> but they can drink coffee and go to sleep like that. I just, it's I wonder wild. if we put, if we put you in a sleep lab, would your sleep architecture be different when yes. you're doing that? Yeah, it would, it would actually be better with drinking coffee night, but I think that's because <laughs> I'm so dependent on it. I'll tell you, I can drink coffee at 8 p.m. and go to bed at 8.30 and no problem. But if I don't drink coffee at night, my sleep score tr tracked with my aura <laughs> ring suffers. And I'm not, su I'm not suggesting to anyone they should go out and drink coffee. <laughs> right. What I'm saying is that I'm so dependent on it. There's something my body is telling me that, hey, you need this essential nutrient <laughs> in order to sleep. Yeah. Anyway, we got one more question from Tammy here. What about olive oil and vinegar? So, um, vinegar, I don't really have any problems with. Know what's in your vinegar. Um, some vinegars are better than others and can have contaminants, but I think vinegar is great, although I think it can erode the tooth enamel if you drink too much of it because it's quite acidic. Mm. Olive oil is made from the fruit of olives, not the seeds. So in general, it's much better than a seed oil. But if you look at the uh -huh. amount of linoleic acid in olive oil, it's between 5 and 17%. So you're still getting a more olive oil than you would in animal fat. So I'm a fan of animal fats over olive oil. I would never cook with olive oil. I met a guy the other day in Arawan. He said, can I cook with olive oil? No, don't heat olive oil. It's mm. unstable. You don't want to heat the olive oil because you're going to oxidize the fats. If you want to heat an oil, use something like tallow or butter or ghee. Those are much better fats to heat in my strong belief. So mm. olive oil is okay if you want a liquid oil. And the only time I could think of someone using a liquid oil is if they're eating a salad. But you guys know how I feel about salads. So <laughs> olive oil, better than seed oils. Know the quality. A lot of oil is also cut with seed oils and mm. can have impurities. Uh, I'm going to go over on this one because it's a really important point. Um, if the olive oil is not cold-pressed, extra virgin, organic, you don't want it. Mm. What about coconut oil? Coconut oil is great. It's not an animal fat, but it's the it's my favorite plant fat. So it's okay. very low linoleic acid. And I think it has a lot of great qualities. It's good to cook with. But again, I would choose tallow, butter, or ghee because you're going to yeah. get vitamin K2, vitamin E, vitamin A, stearic acid, mm -hmm. um, like animal nutrients in the fat. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to save the sunscreen question for the private podcast coming up here in a moment. We'll get to all of TK's question. Alabama has some questions. The private podcast patrons. They are in the live stream right now. They got a bunch of questions. I think Danny is even over there jumping up with some <laughs> questions. So we have so many more questions for you. Dr. Saladino, you can check out his podcast. It's called the Fundamental Health Podcast. Uh, real quick uh, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. You know, we're talking about decluttering your food, but you know, you can also declutter your screens. So uh, Ryan and I, a few years ago, we came up with these seven minimalist wallpapers. Because whenever we do anything, it's steeped in irony. Mm -hmm. So we can't have a minimalist wallpaper. No. There's seven minimalist wallpapers for your phones, for your desktop. Collect all seven. <laughs> <laughs> you technically have to. You download, you get one file. <laughs> we'll send you all seven for free. You can find them over on our resources page over at theminimalists.com slash resources. You can download all seven minimalist wallpapers. There's one, the five questions 
questions to ask before buying. That's my favorite because you put it on your your phone screen and you're at the checkout line getting ready to make that impulse buy, maybe at Air One for the $47 smoothie. And you're like, oh, okay, here are the five questions I need to ask before I buy this thing. But it's especially helpful. You have it on your desktop and you're getting ready to buy, you're getting ready to impulse buy a reverse osmosis filter on Amazon. Here are the five questions to ask right here on my screen. It's a constant reminder. So if you want to simplify your smartphone screen or your desktop, Head on over to theminimalists.com. Click on the resources tab there. You'll see a bunch of free resources, including our seven minimalist wallpapers for your smartphone and desktop. Alabama, I want to check in with that live stream. Do you have a comment for us right now? We sure do. We have a comment here from Nastasia. She says, I love all of Dr. Paul Saladino's mini reels about seed oils, what to eat and what to avoid, how to shop at grocery stores, etc. Super helpful. Yeah. You know what was so freeing for me, Paul, was... When I started eating this way, because I ate relatively healthfully before, I say relatively, right? But it was causing a lot of issues, a lot of oxalates and the smoothies and all the stuff that I was eating was causing all this indigestion and, and, and just upset in my stomach. It was really freeing. When I walk into a grocery store now and I look around, I realize like, oh, I can't eat any of this. Yeah. And that it eliminates all the sort of decision fatigue because I simply know none of this is for me, or at least 95% of it is not for me. And it gives me that freedom to move forward and actually get the things for my body that are nourishing, that make me feel healthy. I remember when we were I living I remember when we were living in Montana, like Josh challenged himself to eat like a bag of spinach every single day. <laughs> I used to carry around pocket greens. <laughs> he really did. Pocket greens. <laughs> Full of warm vegetables everywhere he goes. Right. He's <laughs> like a big potato in his pocket. Patrons, we'll get back into your live stream in a moment. But first, Malabama, what do you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hey guys, my name is Jenny and I'm calling from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I wanted to share a tip and trick with minimalists that have a family. My husband and I recently became a family of three, welcomed our son Micah into the world six months ago. And adding another being to our lives can add a great deal of physical items and items that are outgrown really quickly. To honor our family's minimalism efforts and living within our one family income needs, we met um, and went to a family member who has a son one year older than our son, Micah. We asked them if we could borrow their baby clothes and toys that they were storing in their basement and bins just in case they had another baby boy. So we thought that we could use them now rather than them just collecting dust in their basement. We have saved a great deal of time and money by borrowing these items. And in turn, we're storing them in our basement as the family has a smaller home and doesn't have it space and they didn't want to pay to rent a space. We have even started buying bigger clothes and gifting them to the family member as they will become ours in the future when our son grows into that size. So we're creating this baby boy clothes moving wardrobe and getting the most out of each item by sharing them with multiple families. This could work with family members or friends, coworkers of any listeners, um, that need a tip. Uh, it's a win-win for everybody. Hi, guys. This is Virgo from Atlanta, Georgia. I just wanted to call, um, as a longtime barista, I have a couple tips about coffee. I know you guys are, are coffee people and own your own coffee shop, which is great, by the way. I love Bandit. 
Um, I just wanted to tell listeners that there's a really awesome coffee subscription service called tradecoffee.com. You can go in and put in your preferences and what kind of, you know, profiles you like. And, um, you can put in, you know, what your brewing method is or whatever, and they will customize kind of, um, I guess what coffee to send you and how often you can tell them if you want it every week or every two weeks, like I do, or every month or however often you want to receive your bag of coffee. It's great roasted to order specialty coffee. And I have gotten a lot of value out of it. Um, every bag is between 18 and $22 usually. So it's, um, it's about what you would pay at a specialty shop for a bag of coffee. And you can find new roasters to support, which is awesome. The other thing I wanted to share is um, TerraCycle.com, which is a service where you buy basically like a, a, a box and then you fill it with your used coffee bags and they will recycle them for you. And, you know, anybody who drinks a lot of coffee knows like it sucks to throw away all those bags. Um but, you know, what are you going to do with them, right? So you can recycle them with this service. It's a bit of an investment. Usually um, it's like $35 for a small pouch or you can go bigger. I think the biggest option is like a pallet, which is $899 if you want to do that. But yeah, um, it's just an option for recycling those bags. Um, thanks, guys. Welcome back to the Minimalist Podcast. Let's get into some talkaboutables here, a talkaboutable segment. Paul, this is where we talk about some things that... Well, anything that we really want to talk about. It could be something in the news. It could be something that's on our mind. But since we have our whole studio full of people, we got Danny and Alabama and Professor Sean and Jordan. I know they got some questions. But first, what is your beef with sunscreen? <laughs> <laughs> Did you put beef in there purposefully? <laughs> he thinks that instead of sunscreen, you should use tallow, actually. Actually, so, I think he's working on a tallow uh, I, uh, sunscreen. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. You should say, what's your vegetable with sunscreen? <laughs> <laughs> what's your veggie with? I love that. I, I wish we could make that part of the uh, part of the vernacular. Yeah. So what's interesting for me is that when you eat seed oils, you accumulate polyunsaturated fatty acids in your cell membranes mm. because you can't get rid of them. But... We know that if you put something that is in a fat matrix, in a lipid matrix on your skin, you absorb it. Mm -hmm. So my concern is that if you put seed oils on your skin, they will become incorporated into the cell membranes of your mm -hmm. dermis and epidermis. And that is not a good thing when that dermis and epidermis is exposed to ultraviolet radiation. So my major problem with, with sunscreens is that the majority of them have seed oils as a base, very high linoleic acid oils, and that many of them have very nasty components. There's been a recent expose about this. Many of the components in sunscreens do appear in the poop and the pee, meaning that you're absorbing them through whole body and many of them are known carcinogens. So most sunscreen is absolute garbage yeah. and is making you unhealthy. And having mm. said that, a lot of people do need something for sun protection. I think sun is very healthy for humans and there are options either covering up or using tallow or, you know, animal fat-based sunscreens I think would be a better option. What about yeah. zinc oxide? Zinc oxide is the ingredient in, quote, natural sunscreens that allows for sun protection, but you must put it in a matrix, and that matrix is probably going to be something like tallow, mm. ideally, or an animal fat, a low linoleic acid fat. You know, it's funny. My favorite meal has canola oil in it, so I haven't had it in probably almost two years. Oh, crispy rice? Yeah, yeah. over Squirrel, our favorite restaurant in L.A. <laughs> it's so good. There's a place called Squirrel. They don't even serve Squirrel. It's such false advertising. <laughs> Advertisements do suck. You got to ask for it. It's off menu. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Could they make it without seed oils? Uh, you probably. Probably, but uh, I don't, I mean, I, could they? Yes, they yeah. certainly could. You could make Would it yourself they? at home. Probably not. <laughs> um, anyway, I remember the last time I had it, and then Bex and I, it was one of our days off, and we went to the beach afterward, and I got the worst sunburn, and I don't get burnt anymore. 
because I don't eat any seed oils. But I'll just have one time. What's the big deal? I got the worst sunburn. Now, this could be total coincidence. I don't know. But like, and I didn't think about it for several until several days later. And I heard Paul talking about these sunscreens. And I'm like, and then he was talking about linoleic acid. I'm like, oh, yeah, the one time I've had seed oils. And then this happens. That's mm. really interesting. Anytime I post about it on Instagram or Twitter, the comments go berserk. There are so many anecdotes of people who get burned less and are more sun tolerant when they cut out seed oils. Yeah. And mm. anecdotes are just anecdotes. But when the N is hundreds or thousands of people, you have to pay attention. There's something going on here. It's, mm. a, real, it's a real phenomenon when I post about it. That's right. Well, um, I missed something here that I did want to bring up. So... We talked a bit about stress, cortisol specifically. We didn't speak so much about trauma in our lives and how that the body can often store trauma, or at least this is a hypothesis. I'm sure you've heard of German New Medicine. Um, And I don't know. So German New Medicine basically says that most illness in the human body outside of being like poisoned or or being in a, a blunt force accident sort of thing has a lot to do with the stresses or traumas, some sort of trigger in our body. And quite often when we fix our diet, it fixes the symptoms, but then still they often come back in various ways because we haven't addressed the stress or the trauma. And it could be a childhood trauma. And it it could even be something that isn't traditionally thought of as trauma. Like my father used to beat my mother, and I remember witnessing that as a small child. And I, while I may have processed that trauma, if mom took away my, my Nintendo, maybe that didn't, I didn't process that trauma. And so that fear of loss or something, and it can manifest in all these different ways, uh, autoimmune issues, et cetera. What, do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's real. I think it's a big deal for a lot of people. And I think it's a, it's a part of the human consciousness and something to resolve. I don't know how best to do it. I think that um, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in psychiatry and psychology now with entheogens slash psychedelics that could be possibly improving that. I think that for me, um, being in nature and being in situations where the overall nervous system response calms down, allows me to kind of tap into that stuff a little better. I think being in cities for me, this is just my personal experience. And this certainly isn't my area of um, expertise, but just my personal experience is that being in nature and being in situations where I'm low or anxiety and the overall um, autonomic nervous system arousal is lower, kind of helps me work through that stuff. Mm. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, you recently on your Instagram, which you have my favorite Instagram account, by the way. What? You know, wow. put a, a link to because <laughs> I'm, I'm constantly just sharing the videos with friends. Not like you should do this, but like it's amazing how timely it will be. Like, like my friend who had kidney stones recently, and like you shared a video a few weeks ago about oxalates or whatever, and I'm like, oh, you'll just, you'll find value in this video. And, we tend to share things when we find value in it. And I find immense value in what you're putting out there. And so big thanks for that. You're welcome. Thank you. And I want to say that one of the things you said recently on there, you said the worst, most addictive food to eat <laughs> is what? French fries. Oh. Oh. Chocolate, bacon, French fries. Paul, you're going to have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I think like point in case, look at the reactions. Oh. Like when you tell an addict you can't have it, yeah. like this is the, re- it's like, I just proved my point. I can stop whenever I want. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that, that, that got a lot of engagement. We're going to have to talk about that more, but basically you take, there are actual published studies looking at products of breakdown of linoleic acid, most notably a compound called HNE4, HNE4, hydroxynonol in French fries, and it's off the charts. Mm. And that compound, at least in animal models, and it, 
clearly in human uh, trials as well, appears to just completely sabotage our satiety mechanisms. Now you're talking about French fries, like you go to McDonald's to get the French fries, like, cause they're so processed and what they're fried in, or like, can you still, can you do like a potato and like maybe fry it up, like, you know, cut it up and then fry it up in some tallow? I think it would be much better in tallow. You'd yeah. have much lower levels of HNE. But, yeah. you know, we went to, we went to a burger joint here in town that's super popular and we asked them and they fry in, I think it's sunflower oil or something, mm. maybe peanut oil. Uh, one of the two, it could have been peanut oil, but they, again, like, a lot of these places will tout that they're heart-healthy oils with peanut oil full mm. of linoleic acid. And French fries have hugely high amounts of HNE. And then you see, you take something like a potato, which is a starch. And there are studies that show that potatoes by themselves, high in oxalates, not a huge fan of them in general, but they're a very satisfying food, yeah. right? You take a potato and you fry it in a highly polyunsaturated oil, like uh, linoleic acid seed oil. HNE goes through the roof because mm. of the breakdown products. It's fascinating. You're hungry. You can't stop eating it. Yeah. But it sounds like you're saying cooking it in animal fat doesn't let us off the hook. It's still. No, it would be be much better. It would would be much better. So if you're cooking it, um, deep frying is probably not a good thing in general, right? You take tallow and you absolutely boil it and deep fry it. It's it's not great, but it's going to be way better than seed oil. Like if you wanted to eat a a potato, a fried potato, it's cooking in tallow, like McDonald's used to. More, More on the damage that fries do, though. More on that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's mostly the HNE and you're getting seed oils in the fries and that, that seed oil is very oxidized. And then if you want to get really granular, those potatoes are high in oxalates. Mm. So you're getting oxalates, you're getting HNE, you're getting seed oils, you're getting all kinds of problems. So I won't eat them for myself, but I'll give them to Josh before we play basketball. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, why are your ankles so sore? <laughs> Here, Josh, go ahead and carve up before this game. <laughs> and then he'll get a sunburn if you're playing out at the beach. In the sun. <laughs> so, so what we're talking about is a recipe for full body inflammation. When you hear people talk about things like brain fog or autoimmune conditions or sore joints, a lot of that just has to do with inflammation. I hear brain fog, the neuroinflammation, that term, and we treat our brains as though it's separate from our body. Our brain and our body, well, no, if your body's inflamed, your brain is probably inflamed too. Yeah, the blood-brain barrier is porous. And, and I mean, and people talk about leaky brain, leaky gut. It's the same sort of membrane. It's an endothelial type of membrane that protects or, you know, cordons off the brain from the blood. But if, if your gut is leaky, you can have fenestrations, you can have communication and mm. the immune cells can move also, or, or cytokines at least can move. I don't know. I don't know if we technically know if immune cells can move across the blood brain barrier, but, but cytokines, the way that immune cells communicate with each other, sort of the text messages that immune cells send to each other can move across the blood brain barrier. And certainly, mm. um, a lot of that stuff can, can happen in the brain as well. So I think there's a lot of, um, oh boy. Oh boy. Sorry. Matt forgot to remind me to put it on airplane mode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's Batless fall, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, that's messed up. I mean, she's the only one I can blame. <laughs> yeah, up, should have said it a third time. The Chucky podcast Sean is here. We could blame him, right, too. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's my fault for not reminding you to turn yeah, right, your phone exactly. <laughs> inflammation ends up in the brain when mm, it's in the body. Yeah. yeah. Neuroinflammation. I'm sorry. That was my leaky brain that uh, yeah, I forgot to <laughs> put it on airplane mode. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> now, Paul, recently I... I saw this post and it reminded me of you talking about potential problems with polyester in our clothes, non-cotton clothes. I mean, Paul's actually wearing a shirt today, which is a a rare treat for us. (laughs) He actually didn't own any. He had to buy it before he came out. (laughs) You guys think you're joking, but I mean, literally... (laughs) <laughs> That's awesome. So let me let me ask you a question. So this this is a tweet from Dr. G. Doc G tweets. We'll put a uh, link to this in the show notes, and Jordan can put it up on the screen of the video version as well. 
Yoga pant brands with the highest amount of forever chemicals in the crotch area. And it has, mm. a, has a list here. Athleta Girl, NYX, Lululemon, La La Rue, Old Navy, Viore, Yogalicious, Danny's favorite brand. <laughs> and I, I got to say something about this, and I really want to get your take because I don't fully understand it. But I remember back in 2019, Ryan will remember this, September of 2019, I switched underwear brands for something more comfortable. Mm. And I went from a cotton underwear, a boxer brief, the midway brief from Jockey, not an ad. Um, <laughs> and I went to this new underwear brand. It was, like, it was just American Eagle. And the, the underwear was super comfortable. And I really, really liked the way that it felt. But I started experiencing testicular pain. And oh. I, it happened for an entire year. And it got to the point where it was awful. I would wake yeah. up in the morning with intense testicular pain. And I had no idea why. I, I didn't even think about the underwear. Yeah. And then a year into it, I see Paul talking about polyester and I'm like, wait a minute. And so I just switched back to some old underwear to try it out. And within two weeks, the wow. pain completely gone. I mean, yeah. it was unbearable levels of pain. That's wild. Wow. And I know it's completely anecdotal. I'm not even saying that it's a causal relationship, but my God, was that un unbearable. And so what's the problem with polyester? Like, well, we can't wear these synthetic things anymore. <laughs> this What's was really on? wild when I learned about it. And I actually saw someone posting about this with sports bras also, with xenoestrogens and sports bras and, you know, all kinds of clothes that women wear. I think for guys, it's a little easier because we don't need like tight clothing. This mm -hmm. is just a wool shirt, right? Mm -hmm. So I can wear that. It's pretty easy. But women want to wear form-fitting stuff. And I was actually talking to a girl the other day about this and she was saying, but they're not going to make my butt look as cute if I wear some wool, you know, some wool leggings. I was like, okay, I get it, I guess. But there, there's studies in dogs where they put polyester underwear on male dogs mm. and they saw declines in like testosterone and sperm counts and fertility. I forget exactly the endpoints, but I thought that was wild. And I think they even had changes in, in female dog fertility when they put polyester underwear. And the only hypothesis they had was some sort of electrostatic effect. The polyester has a different electrostatic charge with the skin and perhaps you know, the scrotum is quite thin and it's changing the formation of sperm and sperm in the testicles through the scrotum. But this kind of stuff is even more insidious when you have forever chemicals. And when I think of forever chemicals, I think of things like dioxanes and PFAs. We mentioned that in the lining of cups and um, uh, like paper that's coated in plastic. But if that can move across the skin, and I think it, it probably can, then you're then you're getting these chemicals through sports bras, through the crotch of your yoga pants. That's not a good thing for humans. Wow. That's really scary stuff. It's crazy to think. I mean, it's... I don't know. I hope there's a revolution, but being at the gym on this trip more than I usually have in Costa Rica, I don't. I don't think any girls are paying attention to this. Most girls just want the the scrunchy butt, like uh, uh, yoga pants. Yeah, I, and but we don't even think that's about why I wear polyester. <laughs> <laughs> you should see Ryan in some yoga pants. <laughs> have you guys? Okay, I just, this is completely off topic. Like I like I went to Costa Rica two years ago, and I come back, and suddenly like yoga pants have gotten like even more wedgy for girls. They're making the pants go like in the butt yeah. crack. Like, it's great, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of cool, but it's like, how do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's wild. So so let me let me just be clear here. The alternative to that sounds like <laughs> cotton. Right. Or, well, I can't wear wool. I'm allergic to wool. Uh. So like cotton, it seems to be the only Bamboo. sort of alternative. Okay. Some clothes oh, are made like from... just wear sticks all over me. <laughs> no, some fibers are made from bamboo. There's clothing made from hemp these okay, days. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot yeah. of natural fibers. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And, and I so, can do wool, cotton, and hemp. I'm writing this down. Bamboo. Wool, cotton, hemp, right. bamboo. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because, um, so when I travel, um, I travel with sheets because I don't want polyester in the sheets that I'm sleeping on an Airbnb. Wow. So I'll bring a pair of I, what, 40 bucks on Amazon for yeah. King organic cotton sheets. And I actually have to travel with a towel now, but that's a whole separate for fragrance because I, I get to the Airbnb and it takes me two hours of rewashing their towels in dish soap or whatever I can get from the store that's like non-fragranced or just water or vinegar to get the fragrance out of towels. Let's talk about what the problems are with many of those fragrance fragrances. Now, I get a chemical sensitivity to a lot of things. Like if someone's wearing heavy cologne or perfume, a nightmare for me. But even like traditional laundry detergents can be a little bit of a problem and they cause some skin irritation. Skin irritation, multiple chemical sensitivity, they can cause neurologic issues, they can have xenoestrogens and parabens in, in the fragrances. So phthalates are this other chemical that they use, um, it's, it's used in fragrances. So whenever I go into anywhere public and I see one of those Glade plugins in the wall, I'm tempted to just like take it out and throw it in the garbage. I hate yes. these things. We're just, you're polluting the air, you know, with these phthalates that are, you're inhaling these compounds into mm. your body. And so these fragrances are full of them. And did you see the recent um, news about the four detergents that are banned in New York City because they have high levels of 1,4-dioxane? No. So the level, I think the maximum allowable level is two parts per million and four detergents um, were banned in New York City because they were much above that. I think three to four parts per million of 1,4-dioxane. We did a, a story, we did a reel about this that'll be out soon. And it was one of the Arm & Hammer brands, two of the Arm & Hammer brands, Original Tide, and I forget the fourth one, but if you search it, you'll find that, that detergents can also have these forever chemicals, dioxanes. And there was one, I think it was a seventh generation free and clear, had zero parts per million of 1,4-dioxane. But if you're putting your kids in these clothes and you're in these clothes, you're absorbing them through your skin. So yeah. we're talking about PFAs, forever chemicals, and the crotch of yoga pants. We're talking about it in shirts and underwear for men and women. And we're talking about it in your detergent. It's more what do you use? I use vinegar. Yeah. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. And because in Costa Rica, I cannot find a good detergent, right? There's no... It, it, it forces me to be resourceful in some ways. And I use, I use baking soda to wash my dishes. So I'll use sodium bicarbonate to wash my dishes, which is baking soda, and I'll use vinegar in my washer. Someone made a comment that if you use vinegar in your washer long-term, it may erode the seals of the washer, but that's just something I'm going to have to deal with. Yeah. 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 Wow. DK, you got some questions for Dr. Saladino? Yes, but I, I think a lot of the stuff he's saying is just illustrative of the fact that in order to optimize for health and happiness, You've got to be willing to pay the cost, man. You've like, mm. it costs something to live intentionally. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he's breaking my heart with a lot of the stuff that he's saying, because yeah. I feel like in order to be the person I want to be, I'm going to have to make some tough adjustments. And that means there are certain decisions I can't outsource to restaurants to just make it easy for me. That just feels so overwhelming, right? Like, man, I got to look at my freaking lotions. I got to look at, mm, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean you have to do it all at one time. I'm not depressed. I'm not defeatist about it. It's just, that's one of the things that's standing out to me, man. But okay. It's overwhelming, right? Yeah. 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 It feels overwhelming. So, so I, I should do shot clock for these questions just so I can get a few in and and, and I'm not going to be adding to his, his answers or anything. Interrupting <laughs> 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 me. All right. So, so first, uh, message of hope. I need some hope from you. Please. What if we've been doing all the wrong things and we have damaged ourselves? Is there any hope? Can we undo some of the damage? Absolutely. The human body is incredibly regenerative. Mm. I think that you're breathing. 
you have life force in your cells, your mitochondria are functioning because I'm looking at you and you're looking back at me and you're inhaling breath. Like, absolutely. I think so much of this is salvageable. And we're only beginning to understand the, the level at which the human body can regenerate. But yeah, there's totally hope. And many people see this. There are conditions where in autoimmune things, sometimes the autoimmune, uh, the immune system will destroy a gland like the thyroid. And people mm. absolutely need thyroid replacement. But in the majority of cases, it's absolutely something that can be recovered. Mm. Next. What role should portion control and calorie counting play in our diets? This is going to take more than a minute. Um, I don't believe calories are linear. And I think yeah. calories in, calories out is misleading for people because the quality of the calories you put in affects the calories out. And what mm. I mean by that is that the quality of the food you eat affects your metabolism. And this is what gets lost in calories in, calories out. I think that it's not controversial to say that eat less, move more is a complete failure. The biggest loser, I think the statistic, don't quote me on this, but I would be curious, is 96% of people on the biggest loser gain the weight back oh, and wow. more. So Ow. starving yourself and over-exercising fails in the long term. I call this calorie prison. You cannot lose weight doing that sustainably long-term. We were kind of talking about this before the show and I yeah. wanted to get into this. Yeah. I think there are multiple ways to lose weight and there's not a lot of ways to lose weight sustainably and healthfully long-term that allows you to keep it off. So my hypothesis, my suggestion is that the way to lose weight is to think about food quality before you think about calories. Mm. So I don't think about portion control. I don't think about calories. I don't want people to think about that. I want them to think about improving the quality of their food first and foremost, and, and really not to think about those other things, which means if you want to eat steak and you want to eat tallow and you want to eat raw milk and you want to eat fruit, eat as much as you want mm. and start with that. And if it doesn't work, Let's go on to step two. But I think the majority of people will lose weight effortlessly doing that and they'll feel better rather than starving yourself and over-exercising. So yeah. when I'm at Gold's here in, in Los Angeles, sometimes people come up to me and they, they want to talk. And I was talking to uh, a girl about weight loss and she was saying, I can't lose weight. And I said, what are you doing? She said, well, I'm, I'm just trying to do as much cardio as I can, stair stepper, rower, and I'm trying to eat less. And I said, well, that's gonna, that's gonna, that's the worst, that's a race to the bottom. Mm. The only thing you're going to do, you might lose weight, but gradually you're just going to uh, destroy, you're going to tank your thyroid, which is sort of this metabolic gland in your neck that determines your basal body temperature and your overall metabolism. You're going to destroy that. And not necessarily physically, but functionally, your thyroid is just gonna go lower and lower and lower. This is what happens when we starve ourselves. This is what we see mm. in ketogenic diets. The thyroid Thyroid turns down, the body temperature goes down, the resting heart rate goes down because we're going into this pseudo hibernation state because the body thinks we're starving. And so if you overexercise and you limit foods, your body's going to think you're dying. Yeah. And your, your, your body's going to slowly just turn you down and slowly make you a colder version of yourself, slowly make you a more sluggish version of yourself to not move because you're dying. And when mm. food becomes available and you have abundance and you eat a bunch of honey and some fruit and some meat and some organs, your body's going to say, Hallelujah! I have abundance now, and start to recover the thyroid mm. sort of um, the thyroid uh, decline that you've incurred. So the the way to lose weight is not to think about calories; it's to think about food quality. Yeah. So just to, for some nuance of the conversation that we were having before we started recording was, is I did this um, diet where it was basically pretty much meat and fruit. And then I did do some veg, like some sweet potatoes, regular potatoes, uh, some squashes, things like that. And I did this for 75 days. It's all part of this like 75 hard challenge that I did. And I lost like 20 pounds. And what amazed me is like, I was so worried about gaining it all back after I got off the challenge. But I, I maybe gained like five pounds back tops. Like I've been able to keep it off. There's something there, what, what you're talking about, like having high quality foods and losing the weight that way. And it stays off a little easier. You weren't, you weren't depleting yourself of mm. the nutrients. It, it's interesting. You and I were talking about this beforehand. Calories in, calories out. Calories are an actual measurement. 
mm-hmm. and it's okay to use it as a measurement, but it doesn't measure the quality of your food. You can burn this table in a bomb kilometer and there's a hundred calories in this square of table, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that it's nutritious for you. Yeah. I was talking to Mallory uh, before we started recording and you know, this, this water here from Mountain Valley has some different minerals in it. And those minerals are supposedly, you know, uh, useful to us, but you don't go out to the the driveway and start eating gravel and saying, well, I need I need essential minerals because there are minerals in there as well. Mm-hmm. So calories are just a measurement of burning something. And the difference with the body is our body isn't actually setting things on fire. It's a accurate measurement, the same way as like, hey, Paul, how many square inches of food did you have today? Mm-hmm. That would be an accurate measurement. I just wouldn't see it as being very helpful. It's not as helpful as people think it is. And people base entire training plans and eating plans around calories. And they don't understand that if you eat poor quality food or you eat too little food or you eat too too few nutrients, you are going to burn less calories. So the qualities of your calories in affect the calories out. And that makes it, a, I would say, a much different equation. Still mm-hmm. a useful equation. We're still you know, we're still believing in the second law of thermodynamics and the fact that, you know, matter is neither created or destroyed. But mm-hmm. um, like your thyroid is such a key piece of this. And I believe strongly that if you eat good quality foods and you think about the macronutrients and you give your body signals of abundance, you will burn more calories. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want long-term. You want your metabolism to be as high as possible when you are losing weight, yeah. not as low as possible. Uh, and the yeah. low as possible is what happens when you starve yourself and you overexercise. So how do you feel about intermittent fasting now? You used to intermittent fast, but mm-hmm. I see that you're doing breakfast these days. Yeah, I think it's problematic for humans for the same sort of reasons that you're, mm-hmm. again, giving your body a signal of scarcity. Mm-hmm. And we could get into the nuances of the autophagy but I think that there's evidence that autophagy even happens when you're eating food. Mm. And I think this has been misconstrued in the literature and misunderstood. Really? Yeah, huh. I think that I think the benefits of intermittent fasting are overplayed for humans. I really think they, they are. And you're going to increase cortisol and you're going to limit this. Mm. And I've seen this in the literature and also anecdotally in the people I work with. I mean, I worked with a guy a couple of years ago who was intermittent fasting and he was doing it A++ intermittent fasting, two to three hour eating window. Mm-hmm. 32-year-old guy, his testosterone is 375, which is, which is low end of normal, yeah. perhaps below normal. Mm-hmm. He starts eating in a 12-hour window and his testosterone goes up to 900. The yeah. same foods. It's like mm-hmm. half Orion's testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Like, I do intermittent fasting because that's what feels best for me. Like, I just kind of pay attention to, like, when I start to get hungry. And I usually don't get hungry until 2 or 3 in the afternoon. But I will say there are some mornings where I'm like, oh, I got to eat something. And I listen to that. I don't like stick to it. My, you know, th- my dogma of like, no, no, I'm intermittent fasting. I'm going to starve myself until 2 p.m. Like I will listen to that and have breakfast if I feel like I need it. There are people who have a lot of GI distress too, where I think intermittent fa- fasting helps for a, a period of time. I think that's the benefit of fasting is you're, you're essentially not presenting anything to your gut. We know that when the gut is inflamed, if you're eating some foods, it's going to increase inflammation. And we, we measure that with something called lipopolysaccharide or endotoxin. And though it's only used in the research, there is an LPS, a lipopolysaccharide antibody that you can measure in the research. And when you see that go up, when you see endotoxin move into the body and create antibodies, that's, that's a problem. That's essentially how we get inflammation from the gut into the body. It's a real problem. Mm-hmm. And people who have gut issues, the fasting is like, okay, let's just rest it. That's great. But long-term, we know it's not a very good strategy. And I think mm-hmm. most people who are intermittent fasting are doing it as a lifestyle. And I think it's hurting them more than it's harming them, mm-hmm. more, more than it's helping them. This will be my last one. Multivitamins, marketing scam or meaningful supplement? It's a great idea. It doesn't work well in practice for a variety of reasons. You're basically trying to take a bunch of vitamins and minerals, put them in a synthetic, usually petroleum-based 
pill, which can have excipients, which are things like titanium dioxide, silicon dioxide, talc, which are harmful for humans. The nutrients, quote unquote, in there are often not in the same form that your body wants to use them. Folic acid mm. is a good example. Folic acid doesn't exist in nature. There's no folic acid in anything in nature. And so it's folate, it's methylfolate, it's, you know, adenosyl folate, things like this. So you want to eat food that contains nutrients. That is the best way to get it. And, you know, in, in some ways I've, often said that nutrients are best obtained from organs and organs are the true nature's multivitamin. Like that's the way to get it because you're going to get bio-identical, bio-available forms of these things. They're in a food matrix. That's the way your body's always seen it. Multivitamins create expensive pee and don't don't do much for humans. And there's there's good long-term studies that suggest they do not benefit humans. Like wow. they, and some of them studies suggest they're harmful to humans. Wow. And I think that's because you're getting things like folic acid. We don't fully understand what folic acid versus folate does in the human body. And we don't get folic acid in food. We get methylfolate or you get, you know, tetrahydrofolate, things like that. So this might not just be a placebo type thing. You're saying that it could actually be damaging. Yeah, I think it could be because yeah. you're getting this is, I'm very skeptical of people taking pills because often the pills can create problems for people. And mm. just like I'm going to read the nutrition label on any food that I'm eating or recommending to someone, I want to know what oil is in here. Is there carrageenan? Yada, 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 right? I want to know what's in every pill mm. that someone is eating. I want to know if there's talc or silicon dioxide or titanium dioxide or hydroxypropyl methyl cellulose, right? Mm-hmm. Things that can be problematic for humans. And so this is important to know. And I think that a lot of that stuff is in most multivitamins. Now, mm-hmm. um, it, people, when I say that, some people say, well, well, you have a company that makes supplements, but the supplements we make are just desiccated dried organs in a gelatin capsule. So that I would never make or be a part of something that was with those things. So mm-hmm. I think supplements are beneficial if you're missing something, but most people are getting supplements that are are problematic because they have too many bad things in there. Yeah. I had it explained to me one time, like, uh, I don't know, with vitamin D, for example. Like, yeah, it's best to get it from the sun. Yeah. If, if you take a supplement, the problem is like, when the vitamin D hits your body, it has only like so many receptors. So it's like not grabbing, like you said, like it's not the form that your body is used to having it. So you absorb a lot less because these receptors aren't connecting as well as if you were getting it from the sun. Yeah. Is that a good way to look at it? Yeah, I think so. Vitamin D is interesting. It, it really does appear to be beneficial for humans, but I think that if you just get it from a pill, you're missing all the other benefits of ultraviolet light. Yeah. I mean, we know yeah. that ultraviolet light creates endorphins. It, it, it's so fascinating to me that um, sunlight feels good because it, yeah. makes, it makes these chemicals in our body. That's clearly an evolutionary signal to us, go in the sun. Yeah. And then nitric oxide, which is critical for vasodilatation of all the vessels in our body. I believe there's studies that show, I think this is, yeah, nitric oxide in sunlight like lowers the blood pressure for people, so it has cardiovascular benefits. Yeah, wow. you're not getting any of that when you're just taking the vitamin D. But for people who have chosen to live in, in icy climates that are too far from the equator for part of the year and don't have vitamin D, we call this a vitamin D winter when the mm. angle of the sun isn't high enough to actually make vitamin yeah. D from the ultraviolet rays yeah. in your skin, they probably benefit from it, but sunlight's got to be better. But and it's got to be like a s- special circumstance where, yeah, like that, where the vitamin D supplement might do something for you. Yeah, when yeah. It, where it's better than nothing. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, it's fascinating. Yeah, I think about my cat. There's like this ray of sun that comes in and he's just constantly following <laughs> the one ray of sun. I'm like, there's something to that. Like, it feels good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last few days in Los Angeles have been pretty rainy and, yeah. and overcast. And when the sun's come out, I've just, it's felt really good just to go out, yeah. take my shirt off and try not to lose my Costa Rica tan as much. <laughs> <laughs> well, why Costa Rica? Um, I went there on a vacation and just stayed because it felt like such a good quality of life. You know, I was living in Austin 
two years ago, I was pretty burnt out and, and overwhelmed from building Heart and Soil, this kind of like desiccated organ supplement mm-hmm. company that I was so passionate about. Which, and by the way, I'm a customer of. I'm <laughs> not, not a sponsor, but I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't get my... I, anytime I need supplements, that that type of supplement, it's I don't even look at it as a supplement, really. I look at it as food in a capsule, right? It, yeah. If I'm not willing or able to actually consume that particular food at that time, yeah. it is truly a supplement. And that's that's why I feel so good about building that. But Austin, Texas didn't have things that really lit me up in terms of adventure. I've learned that I either need to be climbing mountains or skiing down them or in the ocean surfing to be to have a center point as a human that makes me much more um, joyful and allows me to be more creative when I have that kind of center grounding. And so I went to Costa Rica on a vacation. I was on my way back from Tanzania with a Hadza. There was a big ice storm in Austin and it was fortuitous because I just skipped Austin and went straight to Costa Rica. And I just, I loved it so much. I never really left. I just kept extending the trip. I surfed every morning. I watched sunsets and sunrises. I was in the jungle. It was just so much simpler and it Mm. just felt so good. I never thought I was going to be an expat and there's certainly been hiccups along the way. It's not easy to live in Central America all the time for a variety of reasons, but it's been great. And now it feels like home and I am really building an amazing life there. And it's just so, it just feels so rich to me. And I feel so, I feel wealthy in the sense that I have the sun. I'm sun wealthy. Mm. We never think about all the, the, all the, all the, the currencies, right? Like the health currency. And I'm, I feel wealthy in the sense that I don't have a lot of frenetic activity in my life. And there's not a lot of Ugh. noise where I live. Yes. Right. And I have monkeys in my yard. That's the loudest thing. And you know, I'm, I'm wealthy because I get the sun every day and yeah. I can go out in the sun and like year yeah. round, I'm at the equator, I can get sun. And then I'm wealthy because I get to go in the ocean and play in the morning. And I have access to something that's mm. so much fun. So like just the currencies that, that, create wealth in my life or they're very high there. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. That's That's experiential currencies. Yeah. You talked about the prices that we have to pay to live a healthy life. And really it's, it's this price of convenience. Like there's a lot of convenience you have to give up to live a healthy life. Yeah. And what Paul has been doing recently, I've noticed on your Instagram and other channels, you talk about even at convenience stores, there can be healthy options. Now, there's always, as Jocko Willing talks about, there's that third option, right, of not eating the food on there. If the airplane food is like, do you want microwave pasta or microwaved uh, veggie sandwich? And you're like, I'll take the third option. I'll just go without for a while. And it's okay to go without Mm -hmm. as opposed to poisoning myself with something. But Mm -hmm. even when you're in a convenience store, you can can often find uh, foods that are in alignment with what you would eat. They're pretty reasonable. I, that's been really kind of fun to do. We went to 7-Eleven. We went to gas stations. And you look at the jerkies. You start with the meat. And, and some of the jerkies have more sugar than others, more processed sugars. But some of the jerkies are just beef and salt. And then it's less than 2% of the things that I'm not a huge fan of. Most of the jerkies in a gas station have 2% or less of things I'm not a huge fan of. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if somebody's in a bind, mm-hmm. you can get that. And then you walk over around the corner to the drink aisle. And a lot of the gas stations now have organic juice, which is just juice and coconut water and glass. They might have coconut water. It's not the perfect option, but one of the things that's been fun for me over the last few years is evolving to just not let perfect be the enemy of good for people. And then you you go, they they often have fruit or a little bit of cheese that's basically real cheese at a Mm -hmm. gas station. So you could get foods that are really not going to poison you at a gas station anywhere. And, and you know, if you take the next step, if you go to Target, or actually the next step is probably McDonald's or In-N-Out. Mm. Neither of those places cook their burgers on seed oil laden grills. They just have a flat top and they cook a burger on it. So if somebody really wanted to get meat, it's not going to be grass-fed meat, but look, you can get a 100% beef burger at In-N-Out. 
great. <laughs> like it's not cooked in seed oils. The fries are cooked in seed oils. Mm, yeah, but avoid those. The burgers are not. So at McDonald's, In and Out. So there are foods that allow people to to live life, to be in situations. Your kids are hungry. You're on the way from a soccer game. You're on a long journey. Stop at McDonald's, get them a burger, cook it on the grill and just feed your kid a 100% beef burger, not mm -hmm. cooked in seed oils. That's not the end of the world. I think that's really cool that these options are out there. Then you go to the next step, which is Target Walmart. Once you're in Target or Walmart, you can find grass-fed beef at Target and Walmart. You can find Kerrygold butter, which is mostly fed grass. You can mm -hmm. find organic produce at, at Target and Walmart. So any grocery store in almost anywhere in the country, maybe I need to take some trips to like real Midwest. Uh, maybe I'm biased because I'm looking at Target and Walmart in Austin mm -hmm. or Los Angeles, but I suspect that even at Target in Topeka, Kansas, you could find some pretty reasonable foods. I know yeah. you could at least get ground beef and I know you could get fruit in those places. And so yeah. that's been kind of a fun journey as well. Yeah. My daughter... Every night we eat pretty much the same meal. It tends to be ground beef and she'll have some sort of, she'll either have like white rice or some fruit with it. And it's so funny because she'll say like, oh, I'm so sick of this until you put it in front of me. And as soon as it's in front of her, like, cause there's, so, there's some sort yeah. of psychological thing like, oh, I'm having the same meal over and over and over. Mm -hmm. But as soon as it's in front of her, she's like, mm, thank you. Like, right. and it's mm. amazing that the, we become, we adapt to that when you've removed all of these sort of excess, yes, the hyper palatable foods that I ate as a kid. You're Ryan and I, we met because we were the two fattest kids in the fifth grade. Wow. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. I was the, the fattest. Yeah. Because I'm an overachiever. Weird flex, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and... And we just bonded over a lot of seed oils. Yeah, and cheeses, cheeseburgers, cheese fries. Yeah, other cheese whiz. Che yes, other cheese-related products. And seed oil siblings. Yes. <laughs> and all of these foods are so hyper-palatable, they're designed to make you obese. Not mm. because the manufacturers want you to be obese. They, they could care less whether or not you are obese, but they want you to eat more of it because the more you eat, the more you buy, the more you buy, the more profits they make, the more profits yeah. they make, the the more they're contributing to, they have the fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, right? Yeah. So it actually would, in some ways, is illegal for them to not make the foods hyper palatable in a sort of roundabout way. Mm. Alabama, I know you had mm. some questions personally. What questions you got for us? Okay, let's start with, can you talk more about water and how to get natural electrolytes in your diet? Uh, natural electrolytes occur in mostly in plant foods like fruit. And I think fruit juices, I drink a lot of coconut water in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. Again, we ran into the little bit of a speed bump around coconut water here in the States because most of it's packaged in paper cartons that are lined with plastic. But I like coconut water. And you know, a good sea salt that if you do a little research, at least claims to be low microplastics is going to be a good thing. I mm -hmm. think off the top of my head, Jacobson, no affiliation is low microplastic. And I've seen some decent data for Redmond, uh, real salt being low microplastic, again, no affiliation, but mm -hmm. uh, there there are good electrolytes in, in, in food too. I mean, meat contains electrolytes, right? Electro yeah. Electrolytes, excuse me, electrolytes are things like sodium and chloride, potassium, all of those are in meat. Meat also contains magnesium. So whole foods, to use an overused term, and mm -hmm. meat and fruit will have lots of electrolytes. That'll mm -hmm. be great for humans. Beautiful. What else, Alabama? What are your thoughts on fermented foods? Fermentation is fascinating. So it seems to be beneficial for humans. Uh, it appears that when you consume fermented foods, that increases the biodiversity of your gut. Fiber does not do that, uh, contrary to popular belief. Now, whether or not that's always going to be a good thing is questionable. There's some nuance around biodiversity, specifically alpha diversity at the level of the gut microbiome. But 
I think that fermented foods are generally great. As we talked about earlier, fermentation of dairy reduces lactose, which allows more people to consume it. I had some coconut water kefir, I almost said the wrong way, uh, (laughs) yesterday or two days ago at Erewhon. I thought it was great. Uh, And fermentation actually can detoxify some of the plant compounds in vegetables. I'm thinking specifically of things like cabbage and sauerkraut. So Mm. Cabbage is a brassicate, so it's a brassica vegetable. It's part of this family of kale and collard and broccoli and cauliflower, which are known to have a series of compounds called isothiocyanates. And these are problematic at the level of the thyroid for humans because they compete with iodine for absorption. Well, one of the benefits of fermenting cabbage is it it degrades it. So fermentation of cabbage will destroy the isothiocyanates and render it less problematic for the thyroid. Mm. So that's a good thing. Some sauerkrauts and kimchis, generally kimchis get added spices, which can be problematic for the gut. So be careful with that if you have an irritable gut. Mm. Uh, Things like the capsicum spices, paprika, or hot peppers are at least clearly in cell culture will open the gap junctions between the intestinal cells, creating this this idea of leaky gut. So Mm. So even though those are fruits? Yeah, yeah, some fruits are problematic. They they can still be, okay. And I think most people would know that intuitively if you've ever eaten a super hot meal and then you go to poop and it's like hot poop, Mm. you know? (laughs) How do you say that tactfully? <laughs> exactly like that. That's exactly how you say it. Hot poop. I'm just really immature, so anytime you say poop, I, I'm going to laugh. I love it too. <laughs> Malabama, you got another one for uh, us? Next question. What are your thoughts on plant-based seasonings and things like teas? Okay, so in the plant-based seasonings and spices, you have herbs or herbs, herbs <laughs> and spices. Spices are seeds, things like coriander or cumin. These are seeds. Mm-hmm. So I think people are more likely to have issues with seed-based spices than they are herbs. Mm-hmm. Herbs are leaves and you're eating such a small amount that I think most people are not going to have a problem with a little bit of basil or a little yeah. bit of oregano. A little bit of it's, dill. It's yeah. small. It's like you're eating gram quantities of of a leaf of a plant. I I can't imagine that's going to be a problem for many people, but some people may be sensitive enough that it could be an issue. But I think people may have more problems with the seed spices. Mm. Um, And even black pepper is something I'm not a fan of for a variety of reasons. Black pepper contains a compound called piperine, which is well known to inhibit an enzyme in the liver that's used in detoxification. It's a really long name called UDP glucuronosyl transferase, but black pepper is problematic for humans in a number of ways. So Mm. black pepper is a seed spice. So if you're using seed spices, just think about that a little differently than you would a leaf spice. In terms of teas, um, again, you're you're taking plant leaves. Some teas are fermented, Mm -hmm. right? Part of the process. I think pu'er tea, I don't drink a tea, but I think some green teas are fermented. That's probably going to detoxify them. And you're boiling water and putting it in the leaves. It's probably pretty benign for most people, but you're still taking extract from leaves of plants. Are you getting defense chemicals? Probably some, but I think it's going to be low. I I would be more worried about mold, contamination in teas and things like that. Mm. Gotcha. What about salt? Salt. I think salt is great for humans. And most people will have an intuitive sense of what is too much and what they need. Again, we talked a little bit about salt quality. You want to know what kind of salt you're getting. I'm not a fan of Morton's salt. I like sea salt. But then when you have sea salts, now we have to worry about microplastics. Mm. So how many microplastics are in your salt? And we don't really fully understand what microplastics do in the human body, but in animal studies, they look very bad. Mm. So microplastics end up in sea salt. So some of these companies are getting hip to this now, and they'll actually publish data on their website about microplastics and ocean-borne microplastics. And you'd want a low microplastic sea salt. I think it'd be great. What but about, I think humans will be better with salt. What about uh, flip-top sipanoids? I totally made that up. <laughs> 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 Professor Sean, I know you had a question for us. What do you got? Uh, I eat about half a cup to a cup of white rice pretty frequently, especially on days I lift. Uh, can you talk about white rice? 
Anecdotally, I've had some friends who had pretty significant reactions with white rice, but I think that if you do well with that grain, it's one of the more benign grains. Mm. There's an white interesting, rice specifically. Yes, though. there's an interesting comparison, white versus brown rice. We've historically thought brown rice is better, but if you look at brown rice, it's much higher in arsenic, which accumulates in the hull of the rice. So you're definitely getting heavy metals <sighs> in, so in brown rice. It's where, it's where the plants will concentrate the arsenic. So you're getting more arsenic in brown rice. Wow. White rice does have lectins. I've even seen evidence that it contains little fragments of things called microRNAs, which may have interfere with some cellular processes in the human body. But if you do okay with white rice, that's great. Just be aware that if with some of these things, if you have issues, maybe cut them out and then add them back in one at a time. So, you know, because, um, my sort of my, my filmer brand manager, his name is Jimmy. Shout out to Jimmy. Uh, he, he ate white rice and he came to hang out with me the next day. We were talking about these ideas. And I said, what the heck happened to you? And he said, I ate some white rice. Oh, and he wow. was puffy and bloated. And oh, yeah, wow. so some people can even respond to white rice. Wow. Yeah. You know, we were talking, Sean, beforehand with uh, white rice. My problem with white rice has to do with, I can't stop. Like we make white rice in the, in the cooker. I'm like, oh, I'll just get another spoonful it's of that. so good. Yeah. And for whatever reason, and I find a similar thing with, with fruit to a lesser extent, but with white rice, it's like, I don't know. It's like I can keep eating it, eating it, eating it. And before I know it, I've had three cups of white rice. And uh, I feel, oh, it's whenever I eat just like what he was talking about earlier with the here are the four foods to incorporate. I don't ever feel the, oh, my God, what did I do? But with just enough white rice, I will I'll feel sluggish for hours afterward. That's that's a really good intuition, that's a really good, you know, feedback for you to say, like, maybe that's not great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think for most people, and we talked about carbohydrates a little bit earlier, but I eat a lot of carbohydrates, but I don't think everyone needs that amount of carbohydrates. I'm in the ocean surfing two to three hours a day. Yeah. Uh, I was, I got to meet up with one of the players from the LA Rams while I was here in Los Angeles, and he's a professional athlete trying to gain weight. He's eating three to 400 grams of carbohydrates a day. Mm-hmm. Not everyone needs that many carbohydrates. So you can scale your carbohydrates. I think they're valuable for people in general, because of this abundance mechanism and this abundance signaling. But I think you can scale them based Mm -hmm. on what your activity level is. So, Mm. and the other thing I would say, specifically with regard to white rice is, I'm not a fan because there's really no nutrients there. It's just... It's just a glucose polymer, yes, which can be helpful for humans. Like glucose is a nutrient. That's actually, I should correct myself. There's the only new, the only nutrient there is glucose. But if you're doing fruit juice, which we may slightly differ in our opinion on, um, then, then you're getting things. I mean, I drink a glass of orange juice and it has thymine and it has vitamin mm. C and it has things. If I'm eating fruit, I'm getting nutrients in there. Yeah. So there's, it's, I think that I'm increasing the nutrient density of the foods I'm eating by choosing fruit or fruit juice over rice for my carbohydrates. Mm. Yeah. Having said that, I do eat some honey, which... That may have nutrients too, but not, we don't think of honey as a great source of many of the canonical vitamins and minerals. Yeah. Right, right. But there could be many minerals that we don't even yeah. have names for at this point. And there are, are there are mm. oligosaccharides in honey that may be beneficial for the gut, et cetera. Yeah. And mm. then of course, the, the, the calorie density in, in the sense that like, if you need fuel for your body, there's a reason when you're out there with the Hadza and they're willing to get stung by bees a hundred times, it's not just because the stuff tastes so good. I mean, that's part of it, but it's because it fuels them to live their lives and without it, they may not be able to to have that same fuel. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you feel about like fish and fish oils? 
Fish oils, I'm not a fan of. Okay. I think most humans who are eating animal foods, whether it's animal meat with some fat on it or egg yolks, are getting plenty of omega-3. Okay. And if you look at the analysis of fish oils, most of them are highly oxidized. It's a very unstable oil. Uh, and omega-3 fatty acid has even more double bonds than most omega-6s. Like just, mm. if you look at the EPA and DHA, they're, they're more highly poly, polyunsaturated than linoleic acid. Mm. And more double bonds in a long chain carbon molecule creates more points of instability, more points for breakage and electrophilic attack at the level of organic chemistry and wow. problems. So fish oils are very, very unstable. And to think that I used to eat fish oil out of a, a bottle and it was open to the air, oh. right? So they used to make this oil like a 369 oil. So I was eating omega-6s purposefully in a spoonful mm. in, in my history. Omega-9 is going to be your, your monounsaturated oleic acid generally. That's what's okay. predominant in olive oil. Omega-6 is the the polyunsaturated fatty acids predominant in seed oils. But I think that omega-3s in excess are probably just as harmful as seed oils. Mm. Most people don't pour fish oil on their food right. like we do with seed oils. But there's good evidence that between doses of two to four grams of fish oil per day, you see a significant increase, and there's multiple studies that show this, in atrial fibrillation in humans. Oh, wow. Which is a heart arrhythmia. Yeah. So there's plenty of omega-3 in animal fat. Okay. If you're eating a steak, you're getting plenty of EPA and DHA, in my belief. Okay. And an egg yolk or whatever. Like, especially if it's a grass-fed animal, although grain-fed animals produce omega-3s in their fat also. So I don't think you need fish oil. Okay. Fish, historically, has been used by humans and I think is a, is a great food. But again, we have to think about sourcing and the oceans are becoming polluted. And, you know, I did some stuff in Trader Joe's this trip to help people with this. And the, the labeling is very misleading. Here's a Norwegian Atlantic salmon. It's farm-raised. It's farm-raised. It's, it's, how can you have a Norwegian Atlantic salmon? That's How can you even call it Norwegian? It's, right. it's, it's tub-raised salmon. It's not Atlantic <laughs> salmon. It's not in the Atlantic Ocean. It's like wow. the species, and it's, it's a tub of fish in Norway or some Scandinavian country that they're raising Atlantic salmon. And all farm-raised salmon is problematic. They have to give it... It all will say color added because mm. that salmon is the color of cod. It's like white fish because they're not eating algae and things that they're supposed to eat in the ocean. Wow. So they have to add color. And that's just an indication of the oh. nutritional differences of, of farm-raised salmon. And you're going to have PCBs, so polychlorinated biphenyls. You're going to have PFAs, mm. perfluoroalkylated compounds. You're going to have microplastics in, in all fish, but especially in farm-raised fish. Mm. So say you're savvy enough to go to Whole Foods or... Trader Joe's and get the Pacific salmon, the wild salmon. Okay, that's great. Except that, again, you're still dealing with fish, which are really, I think, accumulating toxins at a higher rate than land animals in 2023. Oh, wow. And you're dealing with heavy metals. And yeah. that's just salmon, which is a smaller fish and probably cleaner than a halibut or a swordfish or a shark or any of these other things. So it's tough for me. I think if you want to eat some fish, great. But if you choose to make fish, the predominant protein source, check your heavy metals. Yeah. And check for cadmium and lead and arsenic and mercury because you're probably going to have issues with that. And it's yeah. heartbreaking because yeah. what's better than scallops or lobster? Yeah. Um, you know, I might argue that flat, you know, sirloin flap steak is, but those are good. And <laughs> sure. But those are high in cesium and cadmium because they're benthic. They're on the bottom of the ocean. Right. So it's just it's tough to navigate with fish so, these days. So the fish is okay, but the problem is, is like the polluted oceans and not so. to mention microplastics that yeah. end up in fish. Yeah. 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 It's pretty scary. Yeah. So that, that it's just, you can imagine, I, I don't know if this is an appropriate comparison, but the way I've thought about it in my head and said it on my podcast is, would you eat a cow that is grown in the middle of Tokyo? Right. So mm -hmm. you have like the most polluted air, 
right? And right. I think that a lot of fish in the ocean are just swimming in it and they just can't help but accumulate yeah. that those type of things in, in their fat. And you see this. I mean, there are clear cases of heavy metal toxicity from people who decide to eat sushi every day. Right. Yeah, you can get, it's called hatterism. Yeah, you know, I had it. I, I, I had really high... Uh, mercury levels. Yeah. I mean, really, really off the charts high. And I had to do like all this awful chelation to get it out. And it was a terrible experience to get those heavy metal. Um, and, you know, I was constantly saunaing and all these other things to try and get this out of my body. Do you worry about uh, hypervitaminosis uh, with uh, organ meats and with, uh, and obviously with supplements, I would, I would worry about it. But what about with organ meats? I think that the main vitamin people are worried about with our organ meats is vitamin A. Yeah. And I think it's pretty clear that probably a hundred to a thousand times more people are vitamin A deficient than are going to get hypervitaminosis A. Mm-hmm. Uh, vitamin A is pretty hard to get toxic in. I think you could do it mostly with like a retinol palmitate supplement rather than a food. Yeah. But I think you could do it. You'd probably have to eat four pounds of liver a day for six months or something. Uh, Astronomically unpalatable levels. Most people are completely safe. What I recommend for liver is half an ounce a day. Yeah. An ounce a day. And and that's what's in the supplements that we make, at least is a small amount. Some of them, most of them have less than half an ounce equivalent in in six capsules. So and even for pregnant women, I think if you look at the data carefully, vitamin A is not a concern uh, 5,000 micrograms a day, which is half an ounce, a quarter ounce of liver a day. Mm. And there's so many good nutrients in the liver, folate for neural development, you know, neural tube development, riboflavin, all these critical things in, in liver. And historically, tribes were never saying, oh, you're pregnant, don't eat some liver. They're, they're giving pregnant people and couples that want to consume, uh, that want to conceive these organs to consume. So I think that hypervitaminosis with the organs is, it's not really an issue unless you are over consuming a ton of liver is the one I think of off the top of my head. But I should mention something else, which is interesting. If you're a man, this is more of an issue than a woman because women are usually menstruating and having some blood loss. But I think that a man who is choosing to eat lots of animal products should get his iron checked at least once a year, just to make sure you're not over-accumulating iron. Some people do accumulate excess iron. Who knows? I think there are genetic lineages of us in our ancestry who didn't have access to as many uh, nutrient-rich, iron-rich animals or meats. And maybe those of us accumulate, hold on to iron more than others. And so I've seen in some men that when they're eating lots of steak and lots of red meat every single day, that they do get iron stores that are a little bit high. So that's another one you could get a little hypervitaminosis in. And you would know that easily by checking blood work like a ferritin or a transferrin saturation. And that it's remedy to be, it's able to be remedied pretty easily. You do phlebotomy where you just kind of drain your blood. Mm. But it's, and then there are genetic predispositions to this, like hemochromatosis, where you can get really high levels of iron. So people should know Mm. that as well. So I think when we're doing blood work, not enough people are checking their iron levels. So those are the two off the top of my head, but they're pretty easily preventable. Danny, I know you had a question for Dr. Saladino. You know, as we're going through this, I'm looking at TK's features and rarely is his mind blown. Like he, we, <laughs> we see his wheels turn into. <laughs> we tend to have these real like philosophical questions and, and, and what we're talking about here is something that's far more sort of uh, mechanical, right? It, but it turns out that the mechanics that we've developed over our entire lives and over just a few generations have been completely inconsistent with the way that humans have evolved. And I see this like, almost breaking across TK's features right now, where it's like, oh my God, everything I've been doing 
is everything I'm not supposed to be doing. <laughs> my Dorito sandwiches aren't healthy. <laughs> <laughs> my gluten-free Dorito sandwiches. <laughs> 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 it was gluten-free and vegan. And I had it with a Diet Coke. Right. What's the problem? <laughs> Danny, what do you got for us? Um, I know we touched on this a little bit earlier about testosterone with intermittent fasting, but I was interested in um, hearing about your observation about maybe your testosterone um, production since following an animal-based diet or other people's? There's actually one study I'm aware of with intermittent fasting and testosterone went down when they were doing an eight-hour feeding window. Mm. So that's not actually that aggressive. Most people who mm. are doing intermittent fasting don't get excited until you're doing something like six or four. Right. But 16-8 is, is even, even that was impacting testosterone negatively at, at some level. We need more studies there. My testosterone went down when I was keto. So the total was around 500 when I was keto and my sex hormone binding globulin went way up when I was keto into the 120s. And those numbers may not mean anything for people, but now that I'm doing animal-based and aware of my iron status, my sex hormone binding globulin is at 50, which is within the reference range. And my total is between seven and 900. So we're talking about 20 to 30% change in the total and you know, way more than that for the SHBG. And the, the reason sex hormone binding globulin is important is because that means my free testosterone has gone way up with adding carbohydrates and then adjusting my iron stores a little bit. So mm. men and women need to think about testosterone, but especially men think about it for libido, erections, muscle growth, all these recovery, mood stability for men is connected and women is connected with testosterone. It's, it's Testosterone, it seems to be, it's definitely a hormone of vitality. And there's really great studies that look at carbohydrate levels and recovery from exercise. And the metric they use is the free testosterone to cortisol ratio as a, measure, as a measure of recovery and sort of readiness to do more intense exercise. What we find is that the basically, the more carbohydrates, the better. So if you're doing two to 3% carbohydrates, zero carb diet, the, 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 it just looks horrible. Like there's really a decline in free testosterone to cortisol ratio. 30% carbohydrates is better, and even 60% carbohydrates is better than that. Now, most people don't eat 60% carbohydrates in their diet, and I wonder if there's a breaking point between 30 and 60% carbohydrates for macronutrient ratios. That's ideal, but we don't really know. So it's, it's something to experiment with, and I think most people will find that as they add more carbohydrates, they will feel better, and their testosterone will go up, and their cortisol will go down. I um, noticed this with my wife when she... She was, she's always been a paragon of health. Like she grew up on a farm and ate relatively healthfully in the 80s and, and 90s growing up. But in the recent years, last five or so years, when she removed a lot of the foods you talked about, the, the seed oil specifically, most vegetables that like she just never, no longer put an emphasis on those, you'll still eat potatoes or white rice from time to time and not really worry about it. But she never was doing the high fructose corn syrup, but then adding in the really nutrient dense foods you're talking about, the fats, um, the organ meats, et cetera, her libido went through the roof. <laughs> and like, it was like, it wasn't just like libido, like sex drive, but like libido, like vitality for life mm. really improved. And it was an amazing transformation because you almost see like this, this genuine version of her come to the forefront. It's like it was being dampened, like because to the average person, it was like, oh, this is the person who is healthy. But then removing a few things and adding a few nutrient dense things, it's like taking it up. This extra 2% makes all the difference That's in the so world. That's so cool. That's yeah. amazing to hear. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, we hear it, I hear it over and over. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really cool thing. And I think anecdotes valuable. It's not the end 
you know, end all and be all, but it's, you hear these stories and you think, okay, this, there's something here. Yes. You know, there's yeah. something here for humans. It, it, it's beneficial for a lot of people. Let's check in with our patrons. Malabama, let's check in with the Patreon live stream. What do you got for us? We have a question here from Yaneth. Any advice about children's diets? Yeah, I, so I did a podcast about this and I think kids, you know, you talked about this a little bit. Kids will gravitate to meat and fruit pretty easily. You're not going to struggle to feed your child meat and fruit. And I think that's a good thing. And so many, this is why we were talking before the podcast, I kind of want to write a kid's book. And I, I, I haven't quite figured out the concept, but it's something like, you don't need to eat vegetables, kids, <laughs> is, the, is, the, is the subtle message, not so subtle message. And also educating parents that so many dinner table fights could be avoided if you're just, your kids probably don't want to eat vegetables because they're bitter and they have some intuition there that maybe they don't need them or they don't really want to eat these vegetables. And so I think kids' diets, think simple. My sister has uh, a boy and a girl and I'm always telling her just, let them eat meat and fruit and they'll be great. And getting organs into kids is going to be a little more tricky unless you're introducing them very early. But I do have some friends, maybe because they know me, that say their first food for their infants or their babies is liver and they, they eat it up and they love it. If you feed a child liver when that baby is starting out, they are going to love and they're going to ask for that their whole life. If you don't, maybe that's where the desiccated organs come in or something, or you hide liver in smoothies or, you know, something like that. But getting some organs in there would really help as well. So mm -hmm. I think kids' diets are pretty simple. Um, it's, I mean, the term that I use now in my uh, social media stuff is animal-based. We talked about how I don't think of myself as a, a strict carnivore anymore. And, and I like the word animal-based because it's in, or the term animal-based, it's in contradistinction to plant-based. And the way that I've defined it is organs, meat, fruit, honey, and raw dairy. And I think those things would be great for kids. You can't feed babies less than one-year-old honey that's raw, but everything else would be awesome. And some people may have some reservations about feeding children raw dairy. In that case, use grass-fed A2 dairy, but um, I've seen it be great for kids. I think all those foods are going to be amazing for kids. They're probably not going to protest much, and you're going to end up with like really healthy, vibrant kids. Hmm. Another awesome. question, Alabama. Here's one from Cheryl. Does reducing coffee actually mean reducing caffeine? I switched to decaf years ago, but is decaf problematic in some way as well? Maybe. <laughs> so we're, coffee is a seed from a plant that's roasted, and then you're taking the water from the seed. So coffee is like dirty seed water, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Sideways glance. Kick his ass, right? <laughs> <laughs> so passive aggressive. <laughs> and, and I unplug his grounding mat. <laughs> anecdotally, I've heard people who find benefit even eliminating coffee from their diet. So I think decaffeinated coffee is going to be better than caffeinated coffee from a sleep perspective. But I think that uh, even decaf coffee is going to have some problems in terms of compounds in, incurred with the, the processing of coffee of acrylamide when you're heating the coffee, which is a class 2B carcinogen according to WHO because you're roasting the coffee and coffee, yeah. You have mold toxins, you have pesticides. So even decaf could have problems for humans. Mm. But again, it's there are much bigger uh, fish to fry mm. than, than coffee, I think, for most people. Mm. One and, of them being fish, actually. And not, and not in seed oil. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, got, I got vegetables with that. Yeah. Yeah. I got vegetables with that. I got, got veg with that. <laughs> hey, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something here. Um, because you're you're right to point out that I'm I'm very quiet today and that I'm making a lot of expressions and I'm, I'm highly affected by everything that he's saying. Um, but that wouldn't happen if someone merely came on our show and just said a bunch of things that was the opposite of the way I think. Mm. That's being mechanical. Yeah. What we're seeing with Paul here today is true philosophy at work. 
And it can be hard to see the philosophy because his knowledge of science is so strong. He's leading with a lot of technical knowledge, but underneath that is this spirit of transparency, this application of critical thinking. I mean, we're talking to someone who has authoritatively defended the carnivore diet and is now on here saying with no sense of shame that I've changed my views on that. To me, that's what philosophy is about. It's not just saying, here's my opinion or here's what everyone ought to do. It's saying, look, here's what mainstream reality tells us. Here are the assumptions we don't question. And here are the things we ought to be rethinking. Here are the things we ought to be reframing and asking ourselves. And here's where I even change my beliefs and what I'm still figuring out. He said so many times on this show, I don't know, in response to questions, or Mm -hmm. I'm still figuring that out, or I haven't read any research on that yet. We are in the presence of not just a brilliant thinker, but a very critical thinker, Mm. a brilliant questioner. And that's why he's adding so much value today. And that's why he's got me so quiet and got my mind blown. (laughs) Because there's a lot of religiosity and nutrition. There are a lot of people that are very confident who don't want you to question them. They speak with expertise and they tell you what you ought to do. And if you put a bunch of nutritionists in the room, it might get just as heated as if you put a bunch of religionists in the room. Yeah. But what we're seeing here today is a clinic on how to talk about these things in a way that makes people hungry for more knowledge. Amen. Not just more calories. Yeah. It, <laughs> amen. Thanks, man. Yeah, Thanks, not, I'm humbled. Yeah, like you're not preaching. It's uh it's it's open-minded and it's curiosity. Thank like you. it's not just yeah, it's not just this preaching. So yeah, thanks for I really yeah. this is huge, man. This is awesome. Thanks man. for the feedback. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't want to be that way, but <laughs> you know, I'm always learning. <laughs> Alabama, who else is in the chat right now? Shout out to our patrons. Thank you so much for being here. What do you got? We have a joint question here from Jessica and Muna. What are the worst and best foods that affect belly fat and fatty liver? Oh, yeah. Mm. That's interesting because we're so worried about belly fat. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's let's start with belly fat. Um, I think being being insulin resistant is going to be problematic for belly fat. And that's complicated. But I think that the fastest or the the, the best way to have a bad outcome with belly fat is to become insulin resistant. And, and the first problem there would be seed oils, I think, for humans long-term mm. for a variety of reasons. And that's also a bad thing for fatty liver. In terms of benefits of fatty liver, usually I think about choline off the top of my head, which is a nutrient found in meat, egg yolks, and liver. And there are studies showing that if you give people choline, the fatty liver gets better. So those would probably be key things. In terms of belly fat, like what is good for belly fat? I think all the things we've talked about, just nutrient-rich foods uh, will reset your overall satiety mechanisms and really help with the body's process of kind of cleaning that out and losing that fat. We have time for one more. Let's do it. Here's from Louise. How do you personalize the best diet for you? A great question. So I've tried to talk about this in my messaging. I think you're probably going to need some framework to start. And, and that's what I hope to give people is a curiosity. And maybe my framework isn't the best framework for you, but the framework that I suggest for humans is think about prioritizing nutrients and minimizing toxins. And when I solve that equation, it comes out with an animal-based diet, organs, meat, fruit, honey, raw dairy. So if, if you find value in what I'm saying, you might start there. And then you can add or subtract things from that based on what feels good to you. So that's where I would start. So I would, I would think about diet Think about a framework or a foundation that feels good to you and then adjust based on how your body is reacting and and what your goals are. But you have to start somewhere and then add and subtract, but add and subtract intentionally. And when you're adding and subtracting, if you have the 
sort of ability to do this, do it gradually. Do it with one food at a time if you can, because that's the most powerful intervention, especially when you're taking things out or putting things back. And I think that the most powerful way to do this is to create a minimalist, simple diet and then add things back one at a time because then you'll see what's happening. And you make the diet as quote unquote lean, not necessarily lean, lean in terms of fat, but lean in terms of choices as possible in the beginning. And then you add things back one at a time and you will see how foods affect you either positively or negatively. Let me talk to you about LDL cholesterol yeah. real quick, because <laughs> there's this common misconception. I have a family member who recently was diagnosed with high LDL. And the first thing the doctor went to is we need to put you on a statin in perpetuity. Right. And when I look at her, yes, she's up there in age, uh, late 60s, early 70s, but has the health of an average probably 45 or 50 year mm-hmm. old, but just sees this one marker on a test. And we now think that she should be on statins. So can we talk about is LDL, high LDL cholesterol bad? And also, are statins problematic in any way? And is, what are statins and what is LDL? Right, right, right. <laughs> this is a super important question. I'll do my best to make it palatable, but it's not going to be in 60 seconds. So that clock, we, we, we don't even need <laughs> Just throw out the clock. <laughs> we don't even need the clock. Mm. Um, so LDL cholesterol is low-density lipoprotein. It's a balloon, it's a it's a spherical molecule in your body that has a single lipid monolayer and it carries cholesterol and triglycerides. It's essentially like a bus that moves from your liver, the bus station, to other tissues of your body and supplies them with building blocks. So now we've already seen that LDL has a functional positive role in the human body. Those building blocks being cholesterol and triglycerides. Cholesterol, yes, is a valuable nutrient in your body. It's the backbone of your steroid hormones. So Mm. all progesterone, estrogen, pregnenolone, uh, testosterone is built from a cholesterol backbone. Is it a steroid backbone? It travels on an LDL bus to tissues of your body. Now there's buses that go back an LDL can go back or HDL buses can usually go back to the liver. This is obviously an oversimplification. There's lots of buses that move around your body on bus routes. And so the LDL is carrying passengers. They get off at certain stops. Other passengers can get on and move back to the liver, generally speaking. Now, in, in, in the LDL particle, there are these other molecules, triglycerides and cholesterol. But we think of cholesterol is misnomer because cholesterol is the steroid molecule, but LDL is a type of cholesterol. But LDL is not cholesterol in any way, shape, or form. It's just a bus that carries a cholesterol molecule. So LDL canonically has been thought of as bad, but let's reframe it. Let's just back up and think, um, why would a molecule that is essential for human life be bad for us? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, And we know there are genetic syndromes where you don't make enough cholesterol because of enzymatic genetic defects in the cholesterol synthesis pathway. The liver makes a lot of cholesterol. You eat cholesterol and the liver makes cholesterol and the liver exports it on the bus to other parts of the body. But there's a condition called Smith-Lemley-Oppitt syndrome where one of the enzymes in the synthesis of cholesterol in the body is broken and you don't make a lot of cholesterol. These kids have depression, they have sleep issues, a lot of them die in utero, and they have massive susceptibility to infections, and they're given egg yolks as a therapy for their disease. They're Mm. given basically a bag of cholesterol, which is an egg yolk, to treat their disease. Mm. We know that in animal models, if you deplete an animal, a rat or a mice, uh, a mouse, of cholesterol, of LDL cholesterol, they're more susceptible to infections. If you give a rat or a mouse more LDL cholesterol, they have more resilience to infectious insults. We know that in humans, 
and this has been studied at many different levels, those humans with higher levels of LDL tend to uh, resist infections and have less hospital admissions. And in the elderly, in elderly cohorts, 75 and above, I believe, those with the highest levels of LDL live the longest and have the most longevity. So there's a real conundrum here in our minds when 99% perhaps of doctors would tell you that LDL is bad. How can this be? And I think it's because the LDL molecule gets associated with increased levels of heart disease so often in, in tests in humans, whether these are observational epidemiology studies. And we say those people, in some people, as the level of LDL rises in the body, we see an increase in cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease being this process of atherosclerosis, right? The formation of a plaque in the arterial wall. So atherosclerosis, heart disease, is in the arterial wall. You have an artery. And if you cut that artery in this direction and you're looking down the center of the pipe, the wall of the artery is where all the action happens for atherosclerosis. atherosclerosis. And there are levels of cells in the arterial wall. There's an endothelium, which is the inside. There's an intima, there's a media. And so subintimally between the intima and the media is generally where the atherosclerotic plaque happens. And in people who have higher levels of cholesterol at a very basic high level, you may see an association between more LDL in the blood higher levels of heart disease. But if you look deeper, it gets really interesting because in many population studies, uh, NHANES, which is a population or Framingham study, if you break that relationship down, and I almost need a whiteboard to explain this, but you let's look at a relationship. On the x-axis, you have the, the amount of LDL cholesterol in the human body and say it's running from 100 to 150 to 200 milligrams per deciliter and then above 200. And on the y-axis, you have incidence of cardiovascular disease, the percentage of people or the relative risk of developing a heart attack or the precursors, meaning this atherosclerosis in the vessel wall. If you look at the Framingham data overall, as you go up, it's a, it's a straight line that kind of goes up to the right, meaning the more cholesterol, the more heart disease. But if you break the cohort down by a third variable, and that variable gives you some indication of your metabolic health or your insulin sensitivity, a very different pattern emerges. And you get four lines based on the metric that I've seen used is HDL cholesterol. So HDL is canonically thought of as good cholesterol, but it's much more complicated than that. Mm. But in this case, HDL is a good proxy for insulin sensitivity because generally people who are more insulin resistant, which is synonymous with prediabetes and diabetes, have lower HDL. Diabetics tend to waste HDL. It's just human physiology that a pre-diabetic or diabetic state results in higher triglycerides and lower HDL. Mm. So if you, if you subfractionate the total cohort of the Framingham study by HDL, you get four lines, right? HDL less than 25 or 25 or less, HDL 25 to 50, HDL 50 to 75, or HDL above 75. You can choose whatever cutoffs you want. And the people with the highest HDL, there's essentially, these are people who are going to have generally insulin sensitivity. They're going to be metabolically healthy, right? People with the lowest HDL, most likely to be diabetic, pre-diabetic, insulin resistant. Okay? Follow me so far? Yep. The people with the highest HDL in the Framingham cohort have basically a straight line that's flat. <laughs> they don't have any connection between the amount of LDL in their body and the incidence of coronary heart disease. Oh, wow. Mm. The people with, or like a very, very small upslope, very small. Okay. People with the lowest HDL looks like this, meaning that the more higher your LDL, the more heart disease you have. And there are multiple studies that show this. In humans who have high HDL and low triglycerides, which is a clear marker of insulin sensitivity and metabolic health, there is very little, if any, relationship between the amount of LDL in your blood and the incidence of cardiovascular disease. But in both instances, that LDL bus is going to be consistently traveling. It's always traveling. And so that's what makes us say it's correlated with that. 
it, the LDL is always there. Yeah. But what we see is that when you, if you, if you stratify studies by insulin sensitivity, we know that the single greatest risk factor, I would argue, for determining whether your LDL is going to be connected with heart disease is your insulin sensitivity. But most, mm. most people don't understand that. Mm. So when your, uh, when your family member had her cholesterol checked, mm -hmm. I'm willing to bet a very nice, delicious ribeye steak that they did not check a fasting insulin. Mm. They they probably did zero metrics to look at her fasting insulin or her metabolic health. So we know very clearly in medicine that your metabolic health is the context by which we should evaluate the risk of your LDL load. But doctors don't do that. So we're, we're flying blind. We're only using half the variables mm. that we should be using. There's no contextualizing because Western medicine isn't good at contextual uh, nuance at all. We just want to say... You have high LDL. We know that in a population, if we give you a statin, and I'll talk about statins in a moment, we will slightly reduce your risk, especially if you've had a heart attack. If you haven't had a heart attack, there's not a lot of great data for statins in primary prevention. But so there, Western medicine is not good at individualizing care for humans. They're, they're okay at looking at a population swath, but for anyone who's listening to this podcast or thinking about these things with nuance or making intentional decisions with regard to their food and lifestyle, Western medicine is not really going to serve you with the level of in, like clarity and like specificity that you really need. And so they're not even going to check what her insulin sensitivity is. They're not gonna say, you're metabolically healthy. And if we look at the data, someone who's metabolically healthy with your level of LDL actually doesn't have an increased risk of heart disease. So why would we give you a statin, which we know interrupts the synthesis of cholesterol in the human body and has tons of side effects because mm. when we're interrupting the synthesis of cholesterol, we're also interrupting the synthesis of coenzyme Q10, which is a key part of an electron transport chain, which is how all the energy in the body gets processed and translated into useful currencies, ATP and things like that. So many people who take statins get muscle aches because they get, because they we've, we've abrogated, we've basically stopped their production of critical nutrients that are in the same pathway as cholesterol. Mm. And so Western medicine says, oh, it's okay, we'll just give you more coenzyme Q10. Well, what about the squalene or these other you know, nutrients that the human body is making in the cholesterol pathway? We're not supplementing all of those. And how bioavailable is this coenzyme Q10 that they're giving you? And if a doctor gives you coenzyme Q10 when you have muscle aches on a statin, that's a very astute physician in the first place. Most of them will just say, stay on the statin. The most important thing is that I don't get sued for you getting a heart attack with this LDL. Mm. So it's a very complex situation, but let's just back up again and, and, and really kind of summarize what we're dealing with here. Here's the question that I would ask, because there are a lot of really well-intentioned, super smart people in the space who believe that something called ApoB, which is a lipoprotein that identifies, that sits on LDL, another bus called VLDL, another bus called chylomicrons. So they say ApoB-containing particles are atherogenic. They create atherosclerosis. Mm. That doesn't make sense to me that a particle that exists in the human body um, that carries this apolipoprotein would inherently be damaging to the endothelium, the inside of our blood vessels, and initiate atherosclerosis. And so the question I always ask these people is, if LDL, if ApoB-containing lipoproteins like LDL are atherosclerotic, meaning they have the ability to generate atherosclerosis on their own by damaging the inside of the blood vessel, then why don't we get atherosclerosis in veins? Hmm. And why is it only in arteries? So when, you, when, when the blood goes out of your heart, and to your tissues, that's in arteries. When it returns from your tissues to your heart, that's in veins. You can see veins on the surface of my skin. They're blue. You can't see the arteries. They're deeper. So A lot the, of track marks there. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the veins are coming back, right? We never see atherosclerosis in veins in humans, only arteries. 
And why is that? Because the same amount of LDL cholesterol is circulating in my veins as in my arteries. It's contiguous system. There are capillaries here. The blood gets pumped out of my heart to my brain and arteries, to my legs and arteries, all over my body. It's in arteries. And then it goes to capillaries and it switches and it comes back around, makes a U-turn and comes back to my heart. That's how it works. So veins don't develop, don't develop atherosclerosis, only arteries. Why is that? If ApoB is initiating atherosclerosis, it doesn't make any sense to me. And the answer is that in arteries, you have higher pressure. You know, average blood pressure is 120 over 80 millimeters of mercury because arteries are more muscular. They have a, a, an outer layer, a muscularis layer that is much bigger than a vein, but the inner part, the endothelium is exactly the same. So arteries are much more muscular because they must carry more pressure mm. to push the blood, which means that when there's more pressure, there's more denuding of the endothelium, which means there's more damage just by being an artery because the pressure in there is higher. So my argument is ApoB containing particles like LDL are not atherosclerotic. You need endothelial damage to initiate atherosclerosis. And then if ApoB particles get wrapped into that, perhaps as part of the repair process, it could make it look like they're make it look like they're guilty, right? Are they the fireman or are they the arsonist? Mm -hmm. Maybe they're arriving to the scene of the damage in the artery that is happening because of mm -hmm. high pressure as part of the healing process. And there's more of them in people who have more susceptibility to damage in their arteries, like diabetics. Mm. We know that people who are insulin resistant or back to that term, insulin resistant, they have more, they have impaired wound healing. We hear about this all the time in diabetics. You get an uh, amputated toe or a leg or a foot. Yeah. They have very impaired wound healing. And we know that in the artery, at the level of the endothelium, just by living, a diabetic is damaging their endothelium, just like you and I are damaging the endothelium of our arteries by having pressure. But neither you or I are diabetic. Neither you or I are insulin resistant. So our body has the ability to repair those things properly, to go in with immune cells and repair the endothelium. But a diabetic, someone that's insulin resistant, is going to have impaired wound healing, and that leaves more holes in the facade where there is damage, where the LDL particles are being called, and there's an immune impairment in the process of repair, and that is what causes atherosclerosis. Does that make sense? That makes sense. That so was if a someone, lot. If someone is metabolically damaged, and they have decreased insulin sensitivity. Is that repairable? It's absolutely reversible mm. by changing the diet. And wow. so just to summarize here with respect to LDL cholesterol, wow. Dr. Paul Saladino is not that worried about LDL cholesterol. Some doctors are worried because they're afraid of being sued. And so then they recommend statins, which might be worrisome for many people because of the side effects. And speaking of not being sued, I should remark that Nothing on this podcast is medical advice. <laughs> and so please consult your doctor, your astrologist, your pet care uh, facilities, and uh, your yoga instructor before yes. implementing anything into your life. Don't take responsibility for yourself. Please outsource it to everyone in your community because you're not responsible. Everyone else is responsible for your health. Oh my goodness. The one thing I'll just add to your summary is I don't worry about LDL if someone is insulin sensitive. In a diabetic, do I worry about LDL? Yeah, but fix the insulin sensitivity, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not, the, the LDL, I think there's, there's a lot of good evidence that we really need to have these, these discussions uh, among physicians and, and question the dogma with regard to LDL. I think just knee-jerk responses saying your LDL is high, you need a statin is, is not the whole picture. You have mm -hmm. to understand the context of that. Mm -hmm. And then we need to equip physicians with education that tells them this is how you 
help your patients reverse their insulin resistance. Mm. And we need to do research that actually creates some substance behind that recommendation. So real quick, because someone who goes to their doctor and their doctor says, hey, you have high LDL, and they panic right away, mm -hmm. right? And they're like, oh, they want me to get on a drug. And I can't possibly repeat everything <laughs> that Dr. Saladino just said. <laughs> and so I just throw up my hands. What is one or two sentences they can say to their doctor to say, I'm not that concerned about my high LDL because I'm not diabetic? Did you check a fasting insulin? Can we, can we evaluate my metabolic health? Mm. And if you just say, can we evaluate my metabolic health? The doctor will not know how to evaluate the metabolic health. Um. So you may need to ask them to check a fasting insulin. And the, the last piece I'll add to this <clears throat> is that it's very clear in human physiology that in many humans, eating more saturated fat and less polyunsaturated fat raises the LDL slightly, right, right. slightly, 10%, 20%, which is why a lot of people eating in this way will go to their doctor and have a quote high LDL. The last time I checked my LDL, it was 130 milligrams per deciliter, which is just above the normal range saying 120. But most doctors would say, you have a high LDL, you should mm -hmm. eat less red meat. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, eating less red meat will lower my LDL. And I could even lower my LDL more by eating canola oil. But what do we know and what are the doctors missing? Something I've hinted at a couple times in the podcast, that if you go a level deeper and you look at the predictors of cardiovascular disease, in general, LDL is pretty poor, like we talked about. What's a really good predictor? Oxidized LDL. So you're taking the phospholipids on the outside of that LDL molecule and asking how many of them have been oxidized. And we know that oxidized LDL goes up when you eat polyunsaturated fats, even though your total LDL goes down because you're populating more of the outside of that LDL molecule with fragile fats, these polyunsaturated fatty acids. Mm. So ox LDL goes up. LP little a, which is another metric of LDL oxidation because it's a particle that kind of scavenges oxidized phospholipids, goes up when you eat polyunsaturated fatty acids, but your LDL goes down. So most physicians are just looking surface at LDL, but mm -hmm. they really we should be looking at oxidized LDL and LP little a. And remember that just because eating saturated fat makes your LDL go up, your oxidized LDL and your LP little a go down. It probably has to do with something, this word is technical, so I apologize in advance, called the homeoviscous model of membrane fluidity. And the, the high level is that when you eat more saturated fats, we know that the fats we eat become a part of our cell membranes and cells are very delicate <clears throat> and very specific about how they want to maintain membrane fluidity. And because you're eating more saturated fats, cells are probably going to raise the cholesterol in your bed, in, in your blood to keep the membrane fluidity at a, at a baseline level. So more saturated fats in the body will, in the diet, will create uh, increase in blood cholesterol because your body's trying to maintain fluidity of the cell membrane. More polyunsaturated fats will probably lower the blood cholesterol because your body is trying to maintain fluidity of the membrane. But again, it's not, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's not pathological that when you're eating more saturated fat, the LDL is going up. It's your mm. body just trying to keep homeostasis. Yeah, that makes wow. a lot of sense. Yeah. We have a little segment we call obsolete objects. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. It just sounds so funny, right? And I wanted to talk to you about the average American kitchen has a lot of kitchen utensils. What do you think are three things in the kitchen that are completely obsolete if you're eating an ancestrally consistent diet? Mm. I just want to hear him talk about air fryers mostly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You don't need a toaster. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The no toaster, toaster for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking of the, the Airbnb that I stayed in. They had a Keurig, 
So I'm not a fan oh, of... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. why would you, even if you're drinking coffee, you're not going to make Keurig coffee, right? right? No. Yep. Um, I'm trying to think what else was in there that we didn't use. I mean, there's a lot of little utensils also that we didn't use. I mean, I basically use a fork and a knife and a spatula to flip things on the grill and some plates and everything else is kind of obsolete. Yeah. So what's essential to you is either a cast iron pan or maybe uh, what, what's the... Uh, Stainless steel pan. Stainless steel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and some sort of spatula. Yeah. And you obviously are avoiding anything with Teflon or nonstick coating. So anything with Teflon, you could consider obsolete. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. Why fact, is that? Again, we're back to PFAs. We're back to forever chemicals, parafluoroalkylated compounds. And the Teflon, it chips off. It ends up in the food. We know the Teflon also aerosolizes when you cook on it. So, oh. yeah. So I, ed- I started to unpack the Airbnb a little bit when I got to the one in Los Angeles and I opened the cabinet. And before I come to this one, I was talking to the property management company and I said, do you have nice pots and pans? Because I I really need to cook on stainless steel. And they said, oh yeah, we've got good stuff. I know. And I opened the thing and it's all Teflon. I texted them right away. This is not going to stand, man. Hmm. This, is, this is not cool. And he said, oh, it's it, it must be somewhere else. And we found that they, for some reason, the cleaners had moved the nice set of cookware to another closet in the house that I had to go find and then, you know, some sequester that's a shitty cookware somewhere else. But I, I, I was I was freaking out a little bit. I was thinking I was going to have to go to Crate and Barrel and buy my own pan because mm. I will not cook on Teflon. So what's up with the stainless steel versus the cast iron? So cast iron, I think it's just the, the cast iron is going to hold the heat better. Yeah. And it's just going to be a better cook, like in terms of like the way that it's going to cook the steak. I think okay. if you get a really good cast iron, it might hold the heat in a certain way. It's just, it's kind of um, high level chef stuff. That's I got you. Probably, so yeah. it's not like the iron's bad for you or anything from a cast iron. It's more about the way that it holds the heat. I think it's only going to add a little bit of iron to your food. If you're someone who does have iron overload, you might want to avoid a cast iron. Yeah. 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 But again, it's, it's minimal. It's small, small amounts. Yeah. All Some right, people so, benefit from cast iron if they have low iron. So we get rid of the toaster. Mm-hmm. We get rid of anything that has uh, a nonstick coating on it. One might say anything that's plastic as well, right? We're definitely getting rid of the dishwasher. Oh, okay. Oh, talk about that. Yeah. So there's actually been some studies looking at the... People are not going to like this. There's there's like a biofilm that happens on your dishes that's probably beneficial for humans. We this kind of wraps into this idea of a hygiene hypothesis and that we're overly clean as humans and we're probably meant to have a little bit of dirt and a little bit of biofilm Mm -hmm. on our utensils. Mm -hmm. And so it finds that people who use dishwashers have a less diverse gut flora, I believe. So I don't like dishwashers because I think philosophically, I I just want to clean the dishes and then put them away. I don't like putting things somewhere where they're just sitting and I can't use them. I just don't like dishwashers. Totally agree. I've Mm -hmm. I've never used a dishwasher. I've lived in houses now because growing up, we didn't have a dishwasher growing up in the house. So like, why would I? I, And then I I move into a place as a dishwasher. I'm like, I don't get like, this is how I wash my dishes. So I I like the fact that you use baking soda and uh, use vinegar to, I assume, to clean your countertops as well. So you don't require, so maybe another obsolete object are all of these fragrant filled cleaners that are all over the house. And they're doing the same thing. They can potentially disrupt the gut microbiome by sterilizing everything. And hormones, if they have xenoestrogens, parabens, phthalates, neurologic disruptants. Yeah, it's crazy how many of these things. I mean, you think about what you put in the dishwasher. Most people are washing their dishes in a very fragrant blue, purple, or orange gel that probably isn't great for humans. Right. Uh, Just like they're washing their clothes in a blue, purple, or orange gel that isn't great for humans. And I never Mm. wanted to do that. So it's 
yeah, it's a very strange thing. And I really, for me, it's actually satisfying to just sit and wash the dishes. There's like Zen proverbs about that. Make sure Absolutely. your rice bowl is clean. Yes. I'm yeah. assuming microwaves are something you get rid of as well. I wouldn't, I, would, I, don't, I think that without knowing all of the microwave research to a deep level, I just, why would I ever use a microwave? I'd rather mm. either eat the food cold or heat it, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Heat it when you're, when you're ready to eat it. Heat it when I'm ready to eat it. And yeah. I would never stand in front of a microwave because I'm sure some of that radiation is leaking out. Yeah. yeah. By the way, tweet that. Heat it when you're ready to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> Are you hitting on me? <laughs> <laughs> Paul, we do a segment called Sucky Ads. As you know, we don't do any advertisements on the podcast. And a few weeks ago, we were reviewing a very good commercial in, in terms of like, it was artfully produced and it was interesting. And it was, unfortunately, it was Ben Affleck selling... Dunkin' Donuts. It was a Super Bowl commercial and he's like working the drive through. <laughs> and what Jordan brought up to me is like, well, yeah, but you, you know that like he's a big fan. He's, you know, he's from the Boston area and like he's a big fan of Dunkin' Donuts. And there are a lot of paparazzi pictures of him holding bags of donuts and coffee. And, and he's like, so it is legit. I, I get that he has a passion for it or whatever, but there's also a lot of paparazzi photos of him smoking cigarettes. And <laughs> I think as a society, we wouldn't tolerate Ben Affleck doing Marlboro commercials if they were legal. And I wanted to get your opinion on this. So an average Dunkin' Donuts meal, I looked this up, is about three donuts and some sort of sugary beverage, right? So would you rather, if you were forced to right now, gun to your head, <laughs> would you rather eat a regular Dunkin' Donuts meal with a big sugary coffee and three big donuts or smoke one cigarette? <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> is this a roll-your-own tobacco or is it a Marlboro? Uh, you get to pick. Oh, I would definitely roll my own cigarette and smoke it right there. Yeah. Wow. I'd choose a cigarette, too. Yeah. For sure. Wait, wait, but but yeah. we got to balance this out because we're comparing three donuts and a sugary just, drink just let him have to it. one just cigarette. Just let him have it. No, okay. <laughs> just let him have it, bro. <laughs> okay. He hates this commercial. Let him have it. I love the Dunkin' Donuts commercial. We were, we, were, we were like tag teaming on Josh earlier uh, last week because he was he brought this up and me and TK were like, you want to go get some donuts after yeah. this, man? Because like, I, don't, I can't even tell you last time I had a donut, but like, I will absolutely eat a donut every once in a blue moon in moderation. <laughs> Same thing with cigarettes. I don't smoke cigarettes, but like maybe once every five years, like, a, you know, someone rolls a cigarette. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I think I'll have one of those. But yeah, it's something that we don't obviously do on a regular basis. I, I haven't smoked a cigarette since I was 12 or 13 years old. I smoked one and a half in a day. And I was the last. <laughs> in my, I was in a skater gang and my friends had cigarettes. And I thought, yeah, let's do it. And I remember I smoked it down by this little creek after a McDonald's meal or something. It was just a stack and all the bad things. And then I quickly realized when I had the second cigarette, I don't want to be a smoker. And I stopped it. I've only smoked one and a half in my whole life. Oh, so I, awesome. I don't smoke roll your own or I have ever, but um, yeah, it's an interesting thing. But also to add to that, donuts are cooked in seed oils. Yeah. Mm. So, but I think that your point is well taken. These, these people are demigods of our society and here they are promoting unhealthy food. I mean, yeah. Kim Kardashian did an ad for one of the Beyond Burger nuggets or something and people were roasting her the fact she didn't even eat it and it's not healthy and it has seed oils and methyl cellulose, which is essentially wood fiber. Anyway, yeah. yeah. And, and so when I look at a commercial like that, the reason I bring it up and compare it to smoking is smoking is something we've all agreed we know it's not healthy. Once upon a time, however, there was four out of five doctors prefer camels or whatever else, right? And so we pretended it was healthy for a period of time. I don't think many people are pretending Dunkin' Donuts is particularly healthy, but I think we're dismissing it as, oh, it's just a treat or I deserve it or whatever. 
But I remember growing up, I would get donuts pretty much every morning. It became mm. my breakfast. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to, to illustrate here is if that is a regular meal, it's probably more destructive than smoking in many cases. You could certainly compare them. Mm. I mean, they're they're both very destructive yeah. for humans. It's 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 a problem for humans, but one of them is completely fine and mm. accepted within society. Right. Mm. Hey, it's the same thing with alcohol. Not the big it's, deal. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah, there's a lot of things that 20 years from now may not be so social, socially acceptable. You know, you see the research that came out recently on one to two drinks a day causing thinning of the neocortex of the brain. No. Yeah. Wow. And we know that a similar amount of alcohol can cause disruption of the, the gut microbiome and the tight junctions between the gut epithelial cells. So, oh, wow. I mean, there's no, um, I was talking to a friend about this. I just don't think there's a healthy quantity of alcohol. Right. Supported you, by the medical literature. Like zero, you're saying. Like zero. Yeah, yeah. But what about the benefits of one glass of wine a night right. or whatever? Because that's what talk we hear, about that. That's what we hear all the time. Yeah. I'll just two two glasses of red wine. That's great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's I haven't figured out how to communicate this clearly. So I'll work on it in this answer. Alcohol may affect platelet function negatively, meaning it may make your platelets less likely to become a part of a clot. So if you drink one or two drinks of alcohol a night, maybe it decreases your risk of cardiovascular disease. But that is a myopic endpoint that Mm -hmm. is completely ignoring what it's doing to your brain and your gut. And the same sort of thing happens all the time in the medical literature with regard to plant defense chemicals or other things. We'll say, look, it benefits this, therefore it must be good for us. We must expand our perspective and think about the total net effect on humans. And I would say, even if thinning your blood a little bit is good. Why are your platelets hypercoagulable and sticky in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Why are you insulin resistant and prone to stroke or heart attacks or any of these clotting disorders in the first place? And you're completely disavowing or ignoring the fact that it's pretty clearly harmful for the brain and the gut, which is going to lead to other things down the road. So we can't just accept medical literature that that has one positive endpoint. We have to expand our perspective and say, what is the net effect? What about all the other negative things it could be doing for humans, whether we're talking about isothiocyanates, whatever the plant compound superfood extract du jour is, or alcohol? We have to look at the whole, the whole way it affects humans. Right. And I think that's how we make a decision about it. But I see this so often. People just want to believe. They want a confirmation bias. They want to believe that alcohol is good for them so they can drink two to three drinks a night. And they just want to ignore the fact that it's shrinking their brain. They cherry pick one stat. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, see, it does this one good thing. Yeah. Yeah. But what about all the other bad things it does, right? Yeah. And, And this is where we have to be very careful with making the distinction between being scientific and trusting anything that is expressed in scientific sounding language. Being scientific is about a way of thinking, a way of testing, a way of critically engaging things. And like you said, we can we can describe in scientific sounding language a justification for eating just about anything. I probably could find something that a donut does for me. But the like, hormetic stress of smoking a cigarette, right? right? Yeah. 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 yeah, That's a real thing. You could say, well, it's, a, it's I, I do it because it's a hormetic stressor and it, it strengthens my body. And it's like, <laughs> come on. I mean, anyone who yeah. says that, you look at them like, come on, get out of here. Yeah. But this hormesis argument, the fact that a little bit of a poison makes you stronger is used for vegetables all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. the same sort of flawed argument, I think, from a philosophical perspective. You just don't, like who says in the first place that your overall stress load needs that stress or that you can, prove to me that that's a net benefit for humans. Mm -hmm. And so I think that 
people use hormesis all the time to justify things that are clearly mm. harmful for humans. Mm. And you can, I've made that argument in previous presentations I've given that you can absolutely make the argument that cigarettes are a hormetic stressor for humans. They activate the exact same biochemical process as isothiocyanates from broccoli do in your liver. It's the NRF2 pathway in your mm. liver. And it's an oxidative stress response because isothiocyanates, specifically sulforaphane, induce oxidative stress in the liver. And they break membranes and they create lipid peroxidation at the level of the membranes in your body, in your liver. Well, cigarettes do the same thing. You hear that, kids? Smoke them if you got them. <laughs> Smoke them if you got them. <laughs> Again, consult your doctor. <laughs> I want to get his response on the record uh, to a very like common colloquial counter-argument that people make sometimes to these types of discussions. They say, yeah, I know a guy who smoked a pack a day and he lived till he was 90. And there was another guy who meticulously did everything and he died out of a heart attack when he was 25, mm -hmm. right? So it really doesn't make a difference. Or nobody's really got time to analyze all the labels and think five times about this and that. You know, you just got to live life and, mm -hmm. you know, nothing's going to be perfect. Just enjoy yourself. What are your general thoughts on, on that kind of framing and how people should approach balance between the pursuit of fulfillment, not taking things too seriously, and at the same time, not just mindlessly absorbing poison that society is feeding us. I think that we all get to determine how we solve a quality of life equation. The work that I've always done, I've when I've really thought about it as a physician, and I think most physicians are, are like this, and it's it's one of the great things about medicine in general, we're trying to help people lead higher quality lives but you get to decide what quality is for you. Mm -hmm. I don't get to tell you what the highest quality life is for TK or, or Joshua or, you know, Ryan. Like, I don't get to tell you this is the highest quality life. For some people, the highest quality life might be drinking a beer every Friday and Saturday night with their friends, and that's fine. But you have to accept the fact that that may have other negative consequences on your life. Mm -hmm. But you get to decide <coughs> what the highest quality life is for you. What brings you the most joint fulfillment? Mm -hmm. And if you solve that equation the way I solve that equation, which is... I want to feel good. I want to think clearly. I want to be able to surf every morning. I want to get up and feel pretty good when I'm getting out of bed. I want to have a libido, you know, sexually. I want to have a libido for life. Then, then this is the this is probably the formula to get there. If mm. your quality highest quality of life is, I want to, like, I want to be in a drinking club, or I'm a I'm a beer connoisseur, or I'm a sommelier, <clears throat> or I'm a donut. <laughs> connoisseur <laughs> or, you know, I make bread for a living and I love sourdough artisan breads, then that's great. But, you know, you get to define what, what is the biggest quality of life yeah. for you. And, and that can translate. I think it's just important and valuable to be able to tell people, okay, if this is the quality of life you want, if you want freedom from suffering and disease so you can do other things, then this is a potential path to get there. Does that make sense? Did I answer your yeah. question? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I get to define what happiness is for me. And if I say, well, happiness for me is eating candy whenever I want, yeah. even if it means never having any energy, mm -hmm. you provide the information that says that's an excellent way to get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting too. Like the same thing can be said, like, um, you know, we'll take these anecdotal th anecdotal statistics and say, well, here's why drinking is good. But then you can flip it too. Like, you know, like surfing, for example, I'm sure I could find stats of like, here's how you're, here's how, uh, you know, the polluted water is affecting you negatively. So it's, it's not about doing things perfectly. I think it's about like, yeah, figuring out what you want out of life. And then it's about looking, you know, looking into the best way to get there. But like you get to pick and choose what you do uh, with these things. So we're not saying don't don't smoke a cigarette, don't uh, eat a donut. We're not also condoning those things, but or propagating those things. But um, yeah, it's 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 all based on like what kind of lifestyle do you want to live? Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, and I think that's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. But for the people who are suffering and not finding answers, yes, hundred percent. Here's a here's a possibility. Ooh, that's a good way to look at it. Like, are you suffering? Yeah. How are you suffering? And then yeah. And if your health is is functioning, because we talk about health all the time, like what is a healthy life? But really, health is just the absence of disease or dysfunction in your body, right? And I think that's true with a relationship. What's a healthy relationship? Well, it's healthy when it's free of dysfunction in the relationship. What's your healthy relationship with material goods? Well, there's no dysfunction there. And that brings it right back to the whole minimalism piece of all of this. Now, we've killed a lot of sacred cows today. (laughs) Uh, We killed seed oils, high fructose corn syrup, artificial sweeteners, vegetables even. Yeah, we've killed sacred vegetables today. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Uh, Sugar, bread, grains, potatoes, nuts and seeds, certain types of maybe A1 dairy or uh, any sort of processed or pasteurized dairy. We killed alcohol and tea and uh, flavor. (laughs) <laughs> no more flavor. I don't care what you say about sugar. I'm never going to give you up, Josh. <laughs> what are you, Rick Roll? Um, so here's the thing. We've we've killed all of these uh, sacred um, um, cow-like substances, uh, and what we've we've gone through here is we've completely turned the common commonly accepted health advice or even paradigms upside down. We got rid of coffee. We got rid of herbs and spices. We Mm. got rid of black pepper today. Mm. Mm. And brown rice. So, Paul, (laughs) how do you feel about killing other people's (laughs) loves and likes and dreams? I think the takeaway here is that we're not breatharians because you have identified the foods that are the most nutrient-dense, nutritious, that make you feel the most alive. Are there any other sacred cows that we need to aim at at this point? (laughs) What did we miss? I think we got it, man. I think we got it. I mean, I, I don't feel in my life like I am restricting. Mm. And I... I wrote about this in, in, in the Carnivore Code, a book that I wrote a few years ago and I've had to sort of look back on and say, oh, I changed some ideas in that book. But I, I wrote about the idea that this doesn't, like some people would look at this and say, that's such a restrictive diet. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I think about it completely differently. I get to eat, I mean, I had, I had steak for breakfast with raw milk and honey and some orange juice and some frozen liver. Uh, and other than the frozen liver, most people might look at that. That all sounds delicious. I mean, if I give you a glass of raw goat's milk with, mm. or cow's milk, if you don't like goat's milk, with raw honey or, or maple syrup, I think almost everyone's like, that's delicious. It's so good. It's like a milkshake. Yeah. And a steak is delicious for people who choose to eat meat. And so I'm not depriving myself. I see this as abundance and there's so much power in the intentional choices. So I think that that's just important for people to understand that it's not a restrictive diet if you just reframe it in your mind. That the... There's so much power in intentional choices. We talked a little bit about convenience and I haven't figured out the best way to say this, but I I like that we brought that up because I think convenience is the enemy of a lot of real fullness of life for people who want to really kick ass at so many levels. Convenience will get in the way of your optimal health. And it's just, 
when I talk to people, I ask them, why did you, because I met a guy in the grocery store two nights ago and he said, oh man, I, I saw your stuff. I did an animal-based diet. I felt really good. And then I fell off. Why'd you fall off? Oh, it was convenience. Mm-hmm. It's always yeah. convenience yeah. for people that, that kind of trips them up. And maybe meeting me was a you know, something that helped him get back on it. But I think that from a a philosophical perspective, being aware of the way that convenience can sabotage our progress is super powerful because if you do things that are not convenient consistently, I think you'll lead a better life. Yeah, it's, 100%. It's not convenient to make my food before I go on a plane. It's not convenient. I mean, I think we're hopefully gonna all go out to lunch after this, but it's not convenient to bring food to this podcast because I thought, well, if they have to go or we can't, then I'm gonna have my food with me and I wanna go to the gym. It's not convenient to want to get raw milk and have to say, well, I have to go to this grocery store because I want to get that product. But but it allows me, I think, to do more things in my life and that's worth everything. Yeah, 100%. It's it's like the same philosophy that we have with stuff. It's like you get rid of your stuff so you can make room for more. And this is exactly what you're talking about with the diet. It's like, let, let some of this go so you can make room for more health. Yeah. More energy, more excitement, more libido. Paul, you said it allows me to do more with my life and that's everything. I want to hear you talk more about that in a way that can paint a picture for people of what the possibilities of health are, because I do believe convenience is a big factor. But I think in our culture, food as entertainment is another factor. And when people consider the possibility of eliminating these toxic foods from their diet, it almost seems like well, what do I have to live for? Mm -hmm. Because food is really a major part of going out, enjoying life, enjoying friends and having fun. What can life look like when you eliminate the foods by which we have previously defined fun and fulfillment? Yeah, that's such an important point. So I'll have to, I'll address it sequentially. If you choose to make food entertainment, that's your quality of life equation right Mm -hmm. there. And you will almost certainly sacrifice optimal health. Mm. And so if you choose to make optimal health, and that's such a wishy-washy, hand-wavy term, I, I should find something better. But if you really want fullness of life, then, I mean, in, for me, it's, I'm 45 years old. I want to surf when I'm 85. I'm not married, you know? I want a relationship. I want to have kids, kids at 45. They're going to be 15 when I'm 60, right? Mm. If I had kids this year, I want to be able to surf with them all my life. Like, that's what it means for me. Like, I want vitality as long as I can get it out of life. And I remember meeting you guys, I don't know, four years ago. Yeah. And yeah. like, since then, I, I feel like a lot of people or some people have benefited from what I do. And I feel a responsibility to keep doing it. Mm. I want clarity of mind so I can keep doing something that I feel responsible to keep doing because maybe I can say something in a unique way that, that adds value to the world. And so I think that a lot of us don't understand our potential as humans and don't understand our physical potential, uh, our romantic potential, our philosophical potential, our intellectual potential, the the things we can do in the world. And for me, those have always been the most important things. And I, maybe I'm an ascetic with this philosophically, but I would always sacrifice enjoyment to be able to do those things better. I I mean, this is going to sound silly, but I would eat dog shit if it were good for me, right? I would Mm. eat something that was completely not enjoyable. I like that. And maybe I'm just wired differently than most people, but I choose to not use food as entertainment. That single choice is probably one of the greatest choices you can make because if you, and I've met a lot of people who who think that way, who think, I want to go out to restaurants and, and, and and eat food and that's my joy in life. Well, great. But if you run into problems with that, it's, it's, it's going to limit you. It's, it's definitely, yeah. uh, I think it's a Faustian bargain, but only if somebody wants to do other things and, and, and makes a quality of life equation solution that's different than that. But it, 
it's it's a tricky thing because that's very limiting. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, yeah. if you use food as entertainment, you <clears throat> will not you will not like making intentional food choices. You will just want to use food as entertainment. I think it's I think it's valid, but it's not how I choose to do it. And I think yeah. most people are leaving a lot on the table in terms of all of the aspects of their life, but that's their choice. Yeah. And I appreciate how ecumenical, respectful, open-minded, and tolerant you're being as you express this. I'll I'll say something to that effect um, from a personal standpoint. Um, my mom went for a walk with my wife and I when she visited us. And um, she says, you all do this a lot? And I says, yeah, we take a walk together every day. And she said, keep doing that, baby. Mm-hmm. Keep doing it. And I knew where my mom was speaking from. I was, She was speaking from the fact that those days are gone for her and my dad. Mm-hmm. My dad's still alive. I love him very much and he's still around. But taking walks with my pop, that ain't happening anymore. Mm. And so even though it's okay or permissible to define quality of life by saying, well, you know what? My joy is food. When we think about the elements that make that fun, it's things like being able to get in the car and drive to a restaurant. It's like being able to get out of the car by yourself on your own strength and walk to the movie theater where you're going to eat that popcorn and drink that soda. And if you take away all those things because you don't want to let go of the sodas or the popcorn you eventually lose those things too. Mm. And we take for granted all of the different ways in which health, the ability to move around, the ability to stay awake, the ability to focus your attention on something for two hours and have an active mind so you can discuss it when it's over. Our health determines our ability to enjoy those things too. So even if you say, I just like to go to restaurants and eat, well, you got to watch what you eat in order to be able to do that when you're 60, 70, and 80. Yeah. People lose that. Dude, when Josh and I wrote uh, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, and we talk about, you know, the five different valleys, health is like, that's the first thing we talk about. Yeah. Like, without your health, you really don't have anything. Yeah. We don't have much. I mean, I, you remind me of my dad. 72 years old. He's a physician. And he's he's kind of living in a prison of his own creation. Mm. He's kyphotic, which means his spine is curving in. His posture isn't good. He has no glute muscles. Mm. He, he has spinal stenosis. Um, he, he can't do much of anything. And he's probably not going to come to Costa Rica to see how I live there. My mom wants to come, but he's not going to be able to get on a plane and come to Costa Rica and see where I live. I don't even know how much of his grandchildren he'll see if I have grandchildren in Costa Rica, mm. right? So he's He's, he's an illustration, kind of like maybe your dad a little bit, you know? And, yeah. and my dad grew up and, and worked as a physician and, and he didn't prioritize the health. He kind of let it slide and he has his own trauma. We talked about trauma a little earlier. I think he has his own traumas. And for him, using food was therapy because it was the only thing he was allowed to do. He's told me that was fun. Mm-hmm. And so it's put him in this prison of his own making and it, it's not so fun for him anymore in yeah, life. Yeah. It's kind of a bummer because yeah. he, can't, he can't do much. Even mm-hmm. if I say to him, Hey dad, let me fly you to Costa Rica. I want to take you to the beach. He couldn't do it. Mm. Wow. Yeah. 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 I'd like to wrap this up. That spurred one additional question here with minimalist exercises, because just like food, we think in feast and famine in terms of movement as well. I either have to go to the gym for two hours a day, every day, or it's not worth it. Mm. But I know with you, Paul, it's much more about doing sort of everyday minimalist movements. Now, yes, you surf every morning, but even if you didn't, there's some pretty simple things that you do with movement that doesn't require a gym. It doesn't require three or four hours of your time every day. It's simple movements throughout the day. 
and prioritizing that movement. You mentioned your father, like, and his glute muscles being missing at this point. That was actually me in my late 20s. All I did was sit down all day, all the time. And so I had to go through a lot of physical therapy in order to even get those muscles reactivated again. And now, yes, I'll go to the gym occasionally, but it's much more about simple body weight, minimalist exercises that help me. What do you do? Not as much as people think I do. <laughs> I surf, which is a lot of swimming. Um, but then during the day, I, I just like to do basic body weight movements most of the time. I, I don't lift weights anymore when I'm in Costa Rica, generally speaking. And if I do, it's once a week, maybe for a few minutes, 10 to 15 minutes, I might do one exercise. So I think in terms of basic human movement, a deep squat is where it starts for me. I love mobility in my hips and ankles. And a deep squat is going to get that. And you can make a deep squat even better if you put something over your head with extended straight arms. So if you put a bar or a band above your arms like this mm -hmm. and you deep squat, that's very hard. And it forces you to have shoulder mobility, mm. thoracic mobility, hip mobility, and ankle mobility. And that's what I do in the morning and throughout the day is I'll do deep squats with a band above my arm and I'll do, they're, I think they're called shoulder dislocate activities, which not a lot of people may not be able to do, where you actually take the band or the bar or the pipe, and you rotate it behind mm. and then back. And that just feels good for me, probably because I'm a surfer and I'm constantly doing a, a sort of a forward motion with my shoulders. And so I'm trying to open them up in the reverse. But those are the movements I do in the morning. And I just like the mobility of like a simple deep squat and then having my hands over my head at the level of the shoulder with like a straight thing and then rotating them backwards. But those are super simple. I think even just walking is great for most people. And I think to your point, many people overdo exercise. We talked about that a little a little bit earlier. And I think that if you're overdoing exercise, if you're not a professional athlete mm -hmm. and you're raising your cortisol and decreasing your testosterone, whether you're a man or a woman, you need to really think like you're at the edge of overtraining and you're, you're going backwards here. So yeah. it's easy just to do simple things to start. And I, to that point, I will also say this. If you had to pick one between diet and exercise, I would pick diet. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I would. Yeah, and it's much, diet, as you've elucidated today, is much more about what you eliminate because we have so many things that we're putting in our bodies that are food-like substances, but they aren't food. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Paul yeah, Saladino. Another, yeah, another round of applause. You can check out his podcast. It's called The Fundamental Health Podcast. We could talk to you all day. Where else do we send folks besides your social media? We'll put links to that in the show notes as well. Those are great spots. That's all you need. We've got a website, Carnivore MD, which has some other resources too, but you'll find it all there. Beautiful. Our yeah, added value today. Here's a song, you know, Erwin Raphael McManus. He was in our last Netflix film, which TK was also in as well. He got to appear alongside Erwin Raphael McManus. Mm -hmm. His daughter, uh, Mariah, she goes by the name Raya as a musician. She's a super talented musician. And this new song just came out. Brand new single. It's called Can't Lose You Now. Big thanks to Paul Saladino. That's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan O'More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. Good luck.